Chapter Ten of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The day after her visit to Lockley, she received a note from her friend Miss Stackpole, a note of which the envelope, exhibiting in conjunction the postmark of Liverpool and the neat calligraphy of the quick-fingered Henrietta, caused her some liveliness of emotion. Here I am, my lovely friend, Miss Stackpole wrote. I managed to get off at last. I decided only the night before I left New York, the interviewer having come round to my figure. I put a few things into a bag, like a veteran journalist, and came down to the steamer in a streetcar. Where are you, and where can we meet? I suppose you're visiting at some castle or other, and have already acquired the correct accent. Perhaps even you have married a lord. I almost hope you have for I want some introductions to the first people, and shall count on you for a few. The interviewer wants some light on the nobility. My first impressions, of the people at large, are not rose-coloured, but I wish to talk them over with you, and you know that whatever I am I'm at least not superficial. I've also something very particular to tell you. Do appoint a meeting as quickly as you can. Come to London. I should like so much to visit the sights with you or else let me come to you, wherever you are. I will do so with pleasure, for you know everything interests me, and I wish to see as much as possible of the inner life." Isabel judged best not to show this letter to her uncle, but she acquainted him with its purport, and as she expected, he begged her instantly to assure Miss Stackpole, in his name, that he should be delighted to receive her at Garden Court. "'Though she's a literary lady,' he said. I suppose that, being an American, she won't show me up, as that other one did. She has seen others like me." "'She's seen no other so delightful,' Isabel answered. But she was not altogether at ease about Henrietta's reproductive instincts, which belonged to that side of her friend's character which she regarded with least complacency. She wrote to Miss Stackpole, however, that she would be very welcome under Mr. Touchett's roof and this alert young woman lost no time in announcing her prompt approach. She had gone up to London, and it was from that centre that she took the train for the nearest station to Garden Court, where Isabel and Ralph were in waiting to receive her. "'Shall I love her, or shall I hate her?' Ralph asked while they moved along the platform. "'Whichever you do will matter very little to her,' said Isabel. "'She doesn't care a straw what men think of her.' As a man, I'm bound to dislike her, then. She must be a kind of monster. Is she very ugly? No, she's decidedly pretty. A female interviewer, a reporter in petticoats. I'm very curious to see her, Ralph conceded. It's very easy to laugh at her, but it is not easy to be as brave as she. I should think not. Crimes of violence and attacks on the person require more or less pluck. Do you suppose she'll interview me? Never in the world. She'll not think you of enough importance. You'll see, said Ralph. She'll send a description of us all, including Bunchy, to her newspaper. I shall ask her not to, Isabel answered. You think she's capable of it, then? Perfectly. And yet you've made her your bosom friend. I've not made her my bosom friend, but I like her in spite of her faults. "'Ah, well,' said Ralph, "'I'm afraid I shall dislike her in spite of her merits. "'You'll probably fall in love with her at the end of three days. "'And have my love-letters published in the interviewer? "'Never!' cried the young man. 
the train presently arrived and miss stackpole promptly descending proved as isabel had promised quite delicately even though rather provincially fair she was a neat plump person of medium stature with a round face a small mouth a delicate complexion a bunch of light brown ringlets at the back of her head and a peculiarly open surprised-looking eye the most striking point in her appearance was the remarkable fixedness of this organ which rested without impudence or defiance but as if in conscientious exercise of a natural right upon every object it happened to encounter it rested in this manner upon ralph himself a little arrested by miss stackpole's gracious and comfortable aspect which hinted that it wouldn't be so easy as he had assumed to disapprove of her she rustled she shimmered in fresh dove-coloured draperies and ralph saw at a glance that she was as crisp and new and comprehensive as a first issue before the folding from top to toe she probably had no misprint she spoke in a clear high voice a voice not rich but loud yet after she had taken her place with her companions in mr touchett's carriage she struck him as not all in the large type the type of horrid headings that he had expected she answered the enquiries made of her by isabel however and in which the young man ventured to join with copious lucidity and later in the library at garden court when she had made the acquaintance of mr touchett his wife not having thought it necessary to appear did more to give the measure of her confidence in her powers well i should like to know whether you consider yourselves american or english she broke out if once i knew i could talk to you accordingly talk to us anyhow and we shall be thankful ralph liberally answered she fixed her eyes on him and there was something in their character that reminded him of large polished buttons buttons that might have fixed the elastic loops of some tense receptacle he seemed to see the reflection of surrounding objects in the pupil the expression of a button is not usually deemed human but there was something in miss stackpole's gaze that made him as a very modest man feel vaguely embarrassed less inviolate more dishonoured than he liked this sensation it must be added after he had spent a day or two in her company sensibly diminished though it never wholly lapsed i don't suppose that you're going to undertake to persuade me that you're an american she said to please you i'll be an englishman i'll be a turk well if you can change about that way you're very welcome miss stackpole returned i'm sure you understand everything and that differences of nationality are no barrier to you ralph went on miss stackpole gazed at him still do you mean the foreign languages the languages are nothing i mean the spirit the genius i'm not sure that i understand you said the correspondent of the interviewer but i expect i shall before i leave he's what's called a cosmopolite isabel suggested that means he's a little of everything and not much of any i must say i think patriotism is like charity it begins at home ah but where does home begin miss stackpole ralph inquired i don't know where it begins but i know where it ends it ended a long time before i got here don't you like it over here asked mr touchett with his aged innocent voice well sir i haven't quite made up my mind what ground i shall take i feel a good deal cramped i felt it on the journey from liverpool to london perhaps you were in a crowded carriage ralph suggested yes but it was crowded with friends 
party of americans whose acquaintance i had made upon the steamer a lovely group from little rock arkansas in spite of that i felt cramped i felt something pressing upon me i couldn't tell what it was i felt at the very commencement as if i were not going to accord with the atmosphere but i suppose i shall make my own atmosphere that's the true way then you can breathe your surroundings seem very attractive oh we too are a lovely group said ralph wait a little and you'll see miss stackpole showed every disposition to wait and evidently was prepared to make a considerable stay at garden court she occupied herself in the mornings with literary labour but in spite of this isabel spent many hours with her friend who once her daily task performed deprecated in fact defied isolation isabel speedily found occasion to desire her to desist from celebrating the charms of their common sojourn in print having discovered on the second morning of miss stackpole's visit that she was engaged on a letter to the interviewer of which the title in her exquisitely neat and legible hand exactly that of the copy-books which our heroine remembered at school was americans and tutors glimpses of garden court miss stackpole with the best conscience in the world offered to read her letter to isabel who immediately put in her protest i don't think you ought to do that i don't think you ought to describe the place henrietta gazed at her as usual why it's just what the people want and it's a lovely place it's too lovely to be put in the newspapers and it's not what my uncle wants don't you believe that cried henrietta they're always delighted afterwards my uncle won't be delighted nor my cousin either they'll consider it a breach of hospitality miss stackpole showed no sense of confusion she simply wiped her pen very neatly upon an elegant little implement which she kept for the purpose and put away her manuscript of course if you don't approve i won't do it but i sacrifice a beautiful subject there are plenty of other subjects there are subjects all round you we'll take some drives i'll show you some charming scenery scenery's not my department i always need a human interest you know i'm deeply human isabel i always was miss stackpole rejoined i was going to bring in your cousin the alienated american there's a great demand just now for the alienated american and your cousin's a beautiful specimen i should have handled him severely he would have died of it isabel exclaimed not of the severity but of the publicity well i should have liked to kill him a little and i should have delighted to do your uncle who seems to be a much nobler type the american faithful still he's a grand old man i don't see how he can object to my paying him honour isabel looked at her companion in much wonderment it struck her as strange that a nature in which she found so much to esteem should break down so in spots my poor henrietta she said you've no sense of privacy henrietta coloured deeply and for a moment her brilliant eyes were suffused while isabel found her more than ever inconsequent you do me great injustice said miss stackpole with dignity i've never written a word about myself i'm very sure of that but it seems to me one should be modest for others also ah that's very good cried henrietta seizing her pen again just let me make a note of it and i'll put it in somewhere she was a thoroughly good-natured woman and half an hour later she was in as cheerful a mood as should have been looked for in a newspaper lady in want of matter i've promised to do the social side she said to isabel 
and how can i do it unless i get ideas if i can't describe this place don't you know some place i can describe isabel promised she would bethink herself and the next day in conversation with her friend she happened to mention her visit to lord warburton's ancient house oh you must take me there that's just the place for me miss stackpole cried i must get a glimpse of the nobility i can't take you said isabel but lord warburton's coming here and you'll have a chance to see him and observe him only if you intend to repeat his conversation i shall certainly give him warning don't do that her companion pleaded i want him to be natural an englishman's never so natural as when he's holding his tongue isabel declared it was not apparent at the end of three days that her cousin had according to her prophecy lost his heart to their visitor though he had spent a good deal of time in her society they strolled about the park together and sat under the trees and in the afternoon when it was delightful to float along the thames miss stackpole occupied a place in the boat in which hitherto ralph had had but a single companion her presence proved somehow less irreducible to soft particles than ralph had expected in the natural perturbation of his sense of the perfect solubility of that of his cousin for the correspondent of the interviewer prompted mirth in him and he had long since decided that the crescendo of mirth should be the flower of his declining days henrietta on her side failed a little to justify isabel's declaration with regard to her indifference to masculine opinion for poor ralph appeared to have presented himself to her as an irritating problem which it would be almost immoral not to work out what does he do for a living she asked of isabel the evening of her arrival does he go round all day with his hands in his pockets he does nothing smiled isabel he's a gentleman of large leisure well i call that a shame when i have to work like a car conductor miss stackpole replied i should like to show him up he's in wretched health he's quite unfit for work isabel urged pshaw don't you believe it i work when i'm sick cried her friend later when she stepped into the boat on joining the water party she remarked to ralph that she supposed he hated her and would like to drown her ah no said ralph i keep my victims for a slower torture and you'd be such an interesting one well you do torture me i may say that but i shock all your prejudices that's one comfort my prejudices i haven't a prejudice to bless myself with there's intellectual poverty for you the more shame to you i've some delicious ones of course i spoil your flirtation or whatever it is you call it with your cousin but i don't care for that as i render her the service of drawing you out she'll see how thin you are ah do draw me out ralph exclaimed so few people will take the trouble miss stackpole in this undertaking appeared to shrink from no effort resorting largely whenever the opportunity offered to the natural expedient of interrogation on the following day the weather was bad and in the afternoon the young man by way of providing indoor amusement offered to show her the pictures henrietta strolled through the long gallery in his society while he pointed out its principal ornaments and mentioned the painters and subjects miss stackpole looked at the pictures in perfect silence committing herself to no opinion and ralph was gratified by the fact that she delivered herself of none of the little ready-made ejaculations of delight of which the visitors to gardencourt were so frequently lavish this young lady indeed to do her justice was but little addicted to the use of conventional terms 
there was something earnest and inventive in her tone which at times in its strained deliberation suggested a person of high culture speaking a foreign language ralph touchett subsequently learned that she had at one time officiated as an art critic to a journal of the other world but she appeared in spite of this fact to carry in her pocket none of the small change of admiration suddenly just after he had called her attention to a charming constable she turned and looked at him as if he himself had been a picture do you always spend your time like this she demanded i seldom spend it so agreeably well you know what i mean without any regular occupation ah said ralph i'm the idlest man living miss stackpole directed her gaze to the constable again and ralph bespoke her attention for a small long cray hanging near it which represented a gentleman in a pink doublet and a hose and ruff leaning against the pedestal of the statue of a nymph in a garden and playing the guitar to two ladies seated on the grass that's my ideal of a regular occupation he said miss stackpole turned to him again and though her eyes had rested upon the picture he saw she had missed the subject she was thinking of something much more serious i don't see how you can reconcile it to your conscience my dear lady i have no conscience well i advise you to cultivate one you'll need it the next time you go to america i shall probably never go again are you ashamed to show yourself ralph meditated with a mild smile i suppose that if one has no conscience one has no shame well you've got plenty of assurance henrietta declared do you consider it right to give up your country ah one doesn't give up one's country any more than one gives up one's grandmother they're both antecedent to choice elements of one's composition that are not to be eliminated i suppose that means you've tried and been worsted what do they think of you over here they delight in me that's because you truckle to them ah set it down a little to my natural charm ralph sighed i don't know anything about your natural charm if you've got any charm it's quite unnatural it's wholly acquired or at least you've tried hard to acquire it living over here i don't say you've succeeded it's a charm that i don't appreciate anyway make yourself useful in some way and then we'll talk about it well now tell me what i shall do said ralph go right home to begin with yes i see and then take right hold of something well now what sort of thing anything you please so long as you take hold some new idea some big work is it very difficult to take hold ralph inquired not if you put your heart into it ah my heart said ralph if it depends upon my heart haven't you got a heart i had one a few days ago but i've lost it since oh, you're not serious miss stackpole remarked that's what's the matter with you but for all this in a day or two she again permitted him to fix her attention and on the later occasion assigned a different cause to her mysterious perversity i know what's the matter with you mr touchett she said you think you're too good to get married i thought so till i knew you miss stackpole ralph answered and then i suddenly changed my mind oh pshaw henrietta groaned then it seemed to me said ralph that i was not good enough 
it would improve you besides it's your duty ha ah, cried the young man one has so many duties is that a duty too of course it is did you never know that before it's everyone's duty to get married ralph meditated a moment he was disappointed there was something in miss stackpole he had begun to like it seemed to him that if she was not a charming woman she was at least a very good sort she was wanting in distinction but as isabel had said she was brave she went into cages she flourished lashes like a spangled lion-tamer he had not supposed her to be capable of vulgar arts but these last words struck him as a false note when a marriageable young woman urges matrimony on an unencumbered young man the most obvious explanation of her conduct is not the altruistic impulse ah oh, well now there's a good deal to be said about that ralph rejoined there may be but that's the principal thing i must say i think it looks very exclusive going round all alone as if you thought no woman was good enough for you do you think you're better than anyone else in the world in america it's usual for people to marry if it's my duty ralph asked is it not by analogy yours as well miss stackpole's ocular surfaces unwinkingly caught the sun have you the fond hope of finding a flaw in my reasoning of course i've as good a right to marry as any one else well then said ralph i won't say it vexes me to see you single it delights me rather you're not serious yet you never will be shall you not believe me to be so on the day i tell you i desire to give up the practice of going round alone miss stackpole looked at him for a moment in a manner which seemed to announce a reply that might technically be called encouraging but to his great surprise this expression suddenly resolved itself into an appearance of alarm and even of resentment no not even then she answered dryly after which she walked away i've not conceived a passion for your friend ralph said that evening to isabel though we talked some time this morning about it and you said something she didn't like the girl replied ralph stared has she complained of me she told me she thinks there's something very low in the tone of europeans towards women does she call me a european one of the worst she told me you had said something to her that an american never would have said but she didn't repeat it ralph treated himself to a luxury of laughter oh, she's an extraordinary combination did she think i was making love to her no i believe even americans do that but she apparently thought you mistook the intention of something she had said and put an unkind construction on it i thought she was proposing marriage to me and i accepted her was that unkind isabel smiled it was unkind to me i don't want you to marry my dear cousin what's one to do among you all ralph demanded miss stackpole tells me it's my bounden duty and that it's hers in general to see i do mine she has a great sense of duty said isabel gravely she has indeed and it's the motive of everything she says that's what i like her for she thinks it's unworthy of you to keep so many things to yourself that's what she wanted to express if you thought she was trying to to attract you you were very wrong it's true it was an odd way but i did think she was trying to attract me forgive my depravity you're very conceited 
she had no interested views and never supposed you would think she had one must be very modest then to talk with such women ralph said humbly but it's a very strange type she's too personal considering that she expects other people not to be she walks in without knocking at the door yes isabel admitted she doesn't sufficiently recognize the existence of knockers and indeed i'm not sure that she doesn't think them a rather pretentious ornament she thinks one's door should stand ajar but i persist in liking her i persist in thinking her too familiar ralph rejoined naturally somewhat uncomfortable under the sense of having been doubly deceived in miss stackpole well said isabel smiling i'm afraid it's because she's rather vulgar that i like her she would be flattered by your reason if i should tell her i wouldn't express it in that way i should say it's because there's something of the people in her what do you know about the people and what does she for that matter she knows a great deal and i know enough to feel that she's a kind of emanation of the great democracy of the continent the country the nation i don't say that she sums it all up that would be too much to ask of her but she suggests it she vividly figures it you like her then for patriotic reasons i'm afraid it is on those very grounds i object to her ah said isabel with a kind of joyous sigh i like so many things if a thing strikes me with a certain intensity i accept it i don't want to swagger but i suppose i'm rather versatile i like people to be totally different from henrietta in the style of lord warburton's sisters for instance so long as i look at the mrs molyneux they seem to me to answer a kind of ideal then henrietta presents herself and i'm straightway convinced by her not so much in respect to herself as in respect to what masses behind her ah you mean the back view of her ralph suggested what she says is true his cousin answered you'll never be serious i like the great country stretching away beyond the rivers and across the prairies blooming and smiling and spreading till it stops at the green pacific a strong sweet fresh odour seems to rise from it and henrietta pardon my simile has something of that odour in her garments isabel blushed a little as she concluded this speech and the blush together with the momentary ardour she had thrown into it was so becoming to her that ralph stood smiling at her for a moment after she had ceased speaking i'm not sure the pacific's so green as that he said but you're a young woman of imagination henrietta however does smell of the future it almost knocks one down end of chapter 10 chapter 11 of the portrait of a lady by henry james this librivox recording is in the public domain he took a resolve after this not to misinterpret her words even when miss stackpole appeared to strike the personal note most strongly he bethought himself that persons in her view were simple and homogeneous organisms and that he for his own part was too perverted a representative of the nature of man to have a right to deal with her in strict reciprocity he carried out his resolve with a great deal of tact and the young lady found in renewed contact with him no obstacle to the exercise of her genius for unshrinking inquiry 
the general application of her confidence. Her situation at Gardencourt, therefore, appreciated as we have seen her to be by Isabel, and full of appreciation herself of that free play of intelligence, which, to her sense, rendered Isabel's character a sister spirit, and of the easy venerableness of Mr. Touchett, whose noble tone, as she said, met with her full approval, her situation at Gardencourt would have been perfectly comfortable had she not conceived an irresistible mistrust of the little lady for whom she had first supposed herself obligated to allow as mistress of the house. She presently discovered, in truth, that this obligation was of the lightest, and that Mrs. Touchett cared very little how Miss Stackpole behaved. Mrs. Touchett had defined her to Isabel as both an adventuress and a bore. Adventuress is usually giving one more of a thrill, she had expressed some surprise at her niece's having selected such a friend, yet had immediately added that she knew Isabel's friends were her own affair, and that she had never undertaken to like them all, or to restrict the girl to those she liked. "'If you could see none but the people I like, my dear, you'd have a very small society,' Mrs. Touchett frankly admitted. "'And I don't think I like any man or woman well enough to recommend them to you. When it comes to recommending, it's a serious affair. I don't like Miss Stackpole.' everything about her displeases me. She talks so much too loud, and looks at one as if one wanted to look at her, which one doesn't. I'm sure she has lived all her life in a boarding-house, and I detest the manners and the liberties of such places. If you ask me if I prefer my own manners, which you doubtless think very bad, I'll tell you that I prefer them immensely. Miss Stackpole knows I detest boarding-house civilization, and she detests me for detesting it, because she thinks it the highest in the world. She'd like Garden Court a great deal better if it were a boarding-house. For me, I find it almost too much of one. We shall never get on together, therefore, and there's no use in trying. Mrs. Touchett was right in guessing that Henrietta disapproved of her, but she had not quite put her finger on the reason. A day or two after Miss Stackpole's arrival, she had made some invidious reflections on American hotels, which excited a vein of counter-argument on the part of the correspondent of the interviewer, who, in the exercise of her profession, had acquainted herself, in the Western world, with every form of caravansary. Henrietta expressed the opinion that American hotels were the best in the world, and Mrs. Touchett, fresh from a renewed struggle with them, recorded a conviction that they were the worst. Ralph, with his experimental geniality, suggested, by way of healing the breach, that the truth lay between the two extremes, and that the establishments in question ought to be described as fair middling. This contribution to the discussion, however, Miss Stackpole rejected with scorn. Middling, indeed. If they were not the best in the world, they were the worst, but there was nothing middling about an American hotel. "'We judge from different points of view, evidently,' said Mrs. Touchett. "'I like to be treated as an individual. You like to be treated as a party.' "'I don't know what you mean,' Henrietta replied. "'I like to be treated as an American lady.' "'Bore American ladies,' cried Mrs. Touchett with a laugh. "'They're the slaves of slaves.' "'They're the companions of free men,' Henrietta retorted. "'They're the companions of their servants, the Irish chambermaid and the negro waiter. They share their work.' "'Do you call the domestics in American households slaves?' Miss Stackpole inquired. "'If that's the way you desire to treat them, no wonder you don't like America.' "'If you've not good servants, you're miserable,' Mrs. Touchett serenely said. "'They're very bad in America, but I've five perfect ones in Florence.' 
"'I don't see what you want with five, Henrietta couldn't help observing. "'I don't think I should like to see five persons surrounding me in that menial position. "'I like them in that position better than in some others,' proclaimed Mrs. Touchett, with much meaning. "'Should you like me better if I were your butler, dear?' her husband asked. "'I don't think I should. You wouldn't at all have the tenue. "'The companions of free men. I like that, Miss Stackpole,' said Ralph. "'It's a beautiful description.' "'When I said free men, I didn't mean you, sir.' And this was the only reward that Ralph got for his compliment. Miss Stackpole was baffled. She evidently thought there was something treasonable in Mrs. Touchett's appreciation of a class which she privately judged to be a mysterious survival of feudalism. It was perhaps because her mind was oppressed with this image that she suffered some days to elapse before she took any occasion to say to Isabel, "'My dear friend, I wonder if you're growing faithless.' "'Faithless? Faithless to you, Henrietta?' "'No, that would be a great pain, but it's not that.' faithless to my country then ah that i hope will never be when i wrote to you from liverpool i said i had something particular to tell you you've never asked me what it is is it because you've suspected suspected what as a rule i don't think i suspect said isabel i remember now that phrase in your letter but i confess i had forgotten it what have you to tell me henrietta looked disappointed and her steady gaze betrayed it you don't ask that right, as if you thought it important. You've changed. You're thinking of other things. Tell me what you mean, and I'll think of that. Will you really think of it? That's what I wish to be sure of. I've not much control of my thoughts, but I'll do my best, said Isabel. Henrietta gazed at her in silence, for a period which tried Isabel's patience, so that our heroine added at last— do you mean that you're going to be married not till i've seen europe said miss stackpole what are you laughing at she went on what i mean is that mr goodwood came out in the steamer with me ah isabel responded you say that right i had a good deal of talk with him he has come after you did he tell you so no he told me nothing that's how i knew it said henrietta cleverly he said very little about you, but I spoke of you a good deal. Isabel waited. At the mention of Mr. Goodwood's name she had turned a little pale. "'I'm very sorry you did that,' she observed at last. "'It was a pleasure to me, and I liked the way he listened. I could have talked a long time to such a listener. He was so quiet, so intense. He drank it all in.' "'What did you say about me?' Isabel asked. I said you were on the whole the finest creature I knew. I'm very sorry for that. He thinks too well of me already. He oughtn't to be encouraged. He's dying for a little encouragement. I see his face now, and his earnest, absorbed look while I talked. I never saw an ugly man look so handsome. He's very simple-minded, said Isabel, and he's not so ugly. There's nothing so simplifying as a grand passion. It's not a grand passion. I'm very sure it's not that. You don't say that as if you were sure. Isabel gave her a rather cold smile. I shall say it better to Mr. Goodwood himself. 
he'll soon give you a chance said henrietta isabel offered no answer to this assertion which her companion made with an air of great confidence he'll find you changed the latter pursued you've been affected by your new surroundings very likely i'm affected by everything by everything but mr goodwood miss stackpole exclaimed with a slightly harsh hilarity isabel failed even to smile back and in a moment she said did he ask you to speak to me not in so many words but his eyes asked it and his handshake when he bade me good-bye thank you for doing so and isabel turned away yes you're changed you've got new ideas over here her friend continued i hope so said isabel one should get as many new ideas as possible yes but they shouldn't interfere with the old ones when the old ones have been the right ones isabel turned about again if you mean that i had any idea with regard to mr goodwood but she faltered before her friend's implacable glitter my dear child you certainly encouraged him isabel made for the moment as if to deny this charge instead of which however she presently answered it's very true i did encourage him and then she asked if her companion had learned from mr goodwood what he intended to do it was a concession to her curiosity for she disliked discussing the subject and found henrietta wanting in delicacy i asked him and he said he meant to do nothing miss stackpole answered but i don't believe that he's not a man to do nothing he is a man of high bold action whatever happens to him he'll always do something and whatever he does will always be right i quite believe that henrietta might be wanting in delicacy but it touched the girl all the same to hear this declaration ah you do care for him her visitor rang out whatever he does will always be right isabel repeated when a man's of that infallible mould what does it matter to him what one feels it may not matter to him but it matters to oneself ah what it matters to me that's not what we're discussing said isabel with a cold smile this time her companion was grave well i don't care you have changed you're not the girl you were a few short weeks ago and mr goodwood will see it i expect him here any day i hope he'll hate me then said isabel i believe you hope it about as much as i believe him capable of it to this observation our heroine made no return she was absorbed in the alarm given her by henrietta's intimation that caspar goodwood would present himself at garden court she pretended to herself however that she thought the event impossible and later she communicated her disbelief to her friend for the next forty-eight hours nevertheless she stood prepared to hear the young man's name announced the feeling pressed upon her it made the air sultry as if there were to be a change of weather and the weather socially speaking had been so agreeable during isabel's stay at garden court that any change would be for the worse her suspense indeed was dissipated the second day she had walked into the park in company with the sociable bunchy and after strolling about for some time in a manner at once listless and restless had seated herself on a garden bench within sight of the house beneath a spreading beech where in a white dress ornamented with black ribbons 
she formed among the flickering shadows a graceful and harmonious image she entertained herself for some moments with talking to the little terrier as to whom the proposal of an ownership divided with her cousin had been applied as impartially as possible as impartially as bunchy's own somewhat fickle and inconstant sympathies would allow but she was notified for the first time on this occasion of the finite character of bunchy's intellect hitherto she had been mainly struck with its extent it seemed to her at last that she would do well to take a book formerly when heavy-hearted she had been able with the help of some well-chosen volume to transfer the seat of consciousness to the organ of pure reason of late it was not to be denied literature had seemed a fading light and even after she had reminded herself that her uncle's library was provided with a complete set of those authors which no gentleman's collection should be without she sat motionless and empty-handed her eyes bent on the cool green turf of the lawn her meditations were presently interrupted by the arrival of a servant who handed her a letter the letter bore the london postmark and was addressed in a hand she knew that came into her vision already so held by him with the vividness of the writer's voice or his face this document proved short and may be given entire my dear miss archer i don't know whether you will have heard of my coming to england but even if you have not it will scarcely be a surprise to you you will remember that when you gave me my dismissal at albany three months ago i did not accept it i protested against it you in fact appeared to accept my protest and to admit that i had right on my side i had come to see you with the hope that you would let me bring you over to my conviction my reasons for entertaining this hope had been of the best but you disappointed it i found you changed and you were able to give me no reason for the change you admitted that you were unreasonable and it was the only concession you would make but it was a very cheap one because that's not your character no you are not and you never will be arbitrary or capricious therefore it is that i believe you will let me see you again you told me that i'm not disagreeable to you and i believe it for i don't see why that should be i shall always think of you i shall never think of any one else i came to england simply because you are here i couldn't stay at home after you had gone i hated the country because you were not in it if i like this country at present it is only because it holds you i have been to england before but have never enjoyed it much may i not come and see you for half an hour this at present is the dearest wish of yours faithfully caspar goodwood isabel read this missive with such deep attention that she had not perceived an approaching tread on the soft grass looking up however as she mechanically folded it she saw lord warburton standing before her End of chapter 11chapter 12 of the portrait of a lady by henry james this librivox recording is in the public domain she put the letter into her pocket and offered her visitor a smile of welcome exhibiting no trace of discomposure and half surprised at her coolness they told me you were out here said lord warburton and as there was no one in the drawing-room and it's really you that i wish to see i came out with no more ado Isabel had got up. She felt a wish for the moment that he should not sit down beside her. "'I was just going indoors.' "'Please don't do that. It's much jollier here. I've ridden over from Lockley. 
It's a lovely day. His smile was peculiarly friendly and pleasing, and his whole person seemed to emit that radiance of good feeling and good fare which had formed the charm of the girl's first impression of him. It surrounded him like a zone of fine June weather. "'We'll walk about a little, then,' said Isabel, who could not divest herself of the sense of an intention on the part of her visitor, and who wished both to elude the intention and to satisfy her curiosity about it. It had flashed upon her vision once before, and it had given her on that occasion, as we know, a certain alarm. This alarm was composed of several elements, not all of which were disagreeable. She had indeed spent some days in analysing them, and had succeeded in separating the pleasant part of the idea of Lord Warburton's making up to her from the painful. It may appear to some readers that the young lady was both precipitate and unduly fastidious, but the latter of these facts, if the charge be true, may serve to exonerate her from the discredit of the former. She was not eager to convince herself that a territorial magnate, as she had heard Lord Warburton called, was smitten with her charms. The fact of a declaration from such a source carrying with it more questions than it would answer. She had received a strong impression of his being a personage, and she had occupied herself in examining the image so conveyed. At the risk of adding to the evidence of her self-sufficiency, it must be said that there had been moments when this possibility of admiration by a personage represented to her an aggression almost to the degree of an affront, quite to the degree of an inconvenience. She had never yet known a personage. There had been no personages, in this sense, in her life. There were probably none such at all in her native land. When she had thought of individual eminence, she had thought of it on the basis of character and wit, of what one might like in a gentleman's mind and in his talk. She herself was a character, she couldn't help being aware of that, and hitherto her visions of a completed consciousness had concerned themselves largely with moral images, things as to which the question would be whether they pleased her sublime soul. Lord Warburton loomed up before her, largely and brightly, as a collection of attributes and powers, which were not to be measured by this simple rule, but which demanded a different sort of appreciation, an appreciation that the girl, with her habit of judging freely and quickly, felt she lacked patience to bestow. He appeared to demand of her something that no one else, as it were, had presumed to do. What she felt was that a territorial, a political, a social magnate had conceived the design of drawing her into the system in which he rather invidiously lived and moved. A certain instinct, not imperious but persuasive, told her to resist, murmured to her that virtually she had a system and an orbit of her own. It told her other things besides, things which both contradicted and confirmed each other, that a girl might do much worse than trust herself to such a man, and that it would be very interesting to see something of his system from his own point of view. That, on the other hand, however, there was evidently a great deal of it which she should regard only as a complication of every hour, and that even in the whole there was something stiff and stupid which would make it a burden. Furthermore, there was a young man lately come from America who had no system at all, but who had a character of which it was useless for her to try to persuade herself that the impression on her mind had been light. The letters she carried in her pocket all sufficiently reminded her of the contrary. Smile not, however, I venture to repeat, 
at this simple young woman from Albany, who debated whether she should accept an English peer before he had offered himself, and who was disposed to believe that on the whole she could do better. She was a person of great good faith, and if there was a great deal of folly in her wisdom, those who judge her severely may have the satisfaction of finding that, later, she became consistently wise only at the cost of an amount of folly which will constitute almost a direct appeal to charity. Lord Warburton seemed quite ready to walk, to sit, or to do anything that Isabel should propose, and he gave her this assurance with his usual air of being particularly pleased to exercise a social virtue. But he was, nevertheless, not in command of his emotions, and as he strolled beside her for a moment in silence, looking at her without letting her know it, there was something embarrassed in his glance and his misdirected laughter. Yes, assuredly, as we have touched on the point we may return to it again for a moment, the English are the most romantic people in the world, and Lord Warburton was about to give an example of it. He was about to take a step which would astonish all his friends and displease a great many of them, and which had superficially nothing to recommend it. The young lady who trod the turf beside him had come from a queer country across the sea which he knew a good deal about. Her antecedents, her associations, were very vague to his mind, except in so far as they were generic, and in this sense they showed as distinct and unimportant. Miss Archer had neither a fortune nor the sort of beauty that justifies a man to the multitude, and he calculated that he had spent about twenty-six hours in her company. He had summed up all this, the perversity of the impulse, which had declined to avail itself of the most liberal opportunities to subside, and the judgment of mankind, as exemplified particularly in the more quickly judging half of it. He had looked these things well in the face, and then had dismissed them from his thoughts. He cared no more for them than for the rosebud in his buttonhole. It is the good fortune of a man who, for the greater part of a lifetime, has abstained without effort from making himself disagreeable to his friends, that when the need comes for such a course, it is not discredited by irritating associations. "'I hope you had a pleasant ride,' said Isabel, who observed her companion's hesitancy. "'It would have been pleasant, if for nothing else than that it brought me here.' "'Are you so fond of Gardencourt?' the girl asked, more and more sure that he meant to make some appeal to her, wishing not to challenge him if he hesitated, and yet to keep all the quietness of her reason if he proceeded. It suddenly came upon her that her situation was one which a few weeks ago she would have deemed deeply romantic, the park of an old English country house, with the foreground embellished by a great, as she supposed, nobleman in the act of making love to a young lady, who, on careful inspection, should be found to present remarkable analogies with herself. But if she was now the heroine of the situation, she scarcely succeeded the less in looking at it from the outside. "'I care nothing for Garden Court,' said her companion. "'I care only for you.' "'You've known me too short a time to have a right to say that, and I can't believe you're serious.' These words of Isabel's were not perfectly sincere, for she had no doubt whatever that he himself was. They were simply a tribute to the fact, of which she was perfectly aware, that those he had just uttered would have excited surprise on the part of a vulgar world. And, moreover, if anything beside the sense she had already acquired that Lord Warburton was not a loose thinker had been needed to convince her, the tone in which he replied would have quite served the purpose. 
one's right in such a matter is not measured by the time miss archer it's measured by the feeling itself if i were to wait three months it would make no difference i shall not be more sure of what i mean than i am to-day of course i've seen you very little but my impression dates from the very first hour we met i lost no time i fell in love with you then it was at first sight as the novels say i now know that's not a fancy phrase and i shall think better of novels for evermore those two days i spent here settled it i don't know whether you suspected i was doing so but i paid mentally speaking i mean the greatest possible attention to you nothing you said nothing you did was lost upon me when you came to lockley the other day or rather when you went away i was perfectly sure nevertheless i made up my mind to think it over and to question myself narrowly i've done so all these days i've done nothing else i don't make mistakes about such things i'm a very judicious animal i don't go off easily but when i'm touched it's for life it's for life miss archer it's for life lord warburton repeated in the kindest tenderest pleasantest voice isabel had ever heard and looking at her with eyes charged with the light of a passion that had sifted itself clear of the baser parts of emotion the heat the violence the unreason and that burned as steadily as a lamp in a windless place by tacit consent as he talked they had walked more and more slowly and at last they stopped and he took her hand ah lord warburton how little you know me isabel said very gently gently too she drew her hand away don't taunt me with that that i don't know you better makes me unhappy enough already it's all my loss but that's what i want and it seems to me i'm taking the best way if you'll be my wife then i shall know you and when i tell you all the good i think of you you'll not be able to say it's from ignorance if you know me little i know you even less said isabel you mean that unlike yourself i may not improve on acquaintance and of course that's very possible but think to speak to you as i do how determined i must be to try and give satisfaction you do like me rather don't you i like you very much lord warburton she answered and at this moment she liked him immensely i thank you for saying that it shows you don't regard me as a stranger i really believe i've filled all the other relations of life very creditably and i don't see why i shouldn't fill this one in which i offer myself to you seeing that i care so much more about it ask the people who know me well i've friends who'll speak for me i don't need the recommendation of your friends said isabel ah now that's delightful of you you believe in me yourself completely isabel declared she quite glowed there inwardly with the pleasure of feeling she did the light in her companion's eyes turned into a smile and he gave a long exhalation of joy if you're mistaken miss archer let me lose all i possess she wondered whether he meant this for a reminder that he was rich and on the instant felt sure that he didn't 
he was thinking that as he would have said himself and indeed he might safely leave it to the memory of any interlocutor especially of one to whom he was offering his hand isabel had prayed that she might not be agitated and her mind was tranquil enough even while she listened and asked herself what it was best she should say to indulge in this incidental criticism what she should say had she asked herself her foremost wish was to say something if possible not less kind than what he had said to her his words had carried perfect conviction with them she felt she did all so mysteriously matter to him i thank you more than i can say for your offer she returned at last it does me great honour ah don't say that he broke out i was afraid you'd say something like that i don't see what you've to do with that sort of thing i don't see why you should thank me it's i who ought to thank you for listening to me a man you know so little coming down on you with such a thumper of course it's a great question i must tell you that i'd rather ask it than have to answer it myself but the way you've listened or at least your having listened at all gives me some hope don't hope too much isabel said oh miss archer her companion murmured smiling again in his seriousness as if such a warning might perhaps be taken but as the play of high spirits the exuberance of elation should you be greatly surprised if i were to beg you not to hope at all isabel asked surprised i don't know what you mean by surprise it wouldn't be that it would be a feeling very much worse isabel walked on again she was silent for some minutes i'm very sure that highly as i already think of you my opinion of you if i should know you well would only rise but i'm by no means sure that you won't be disappointed and i say that not in the least out of conventional modesty it's perfectly sincere i'm willing to risk it miss archer her companion replied it's a great question as you say it's a very difficult question i don't expect you of course to answer it outright think it over as long as may be necessary if i can gain by waiting i'll gladly wait a long time only remember that in the end my dearest happiness depends on your answer i should be very sorry to keep you in suspense said isabel oh don't mind i'd much rather have a good answer six months hence than a bad one to-day but it's very probable that even six months hence i shouldn't be able to give you one that you'd think good why not since you really like me oh you must never doubt that said isabel well then i don't see what more you ask it's not what i ask it's what i can give i don't think i should suit you i really don't think i should you needn't worry about that that's my affair you needn't be a better royalist than the king it's not only that said isabel but i'm not sure i wish to marry any one very likely you don't i've no doubt a great many women begin that way said his lordship who be it averred did not in the least believe in the axiom he thus beguiled his anxiety by uttering but they're frequently persuaded ah oh, that's because they want to be and isabel lightly laughed her suitor's countenance fell and he looked at her for a while in silence 
"'I'm afraid it's my being an Englishman that makes you hesitate,' he said presently. "'I know your uncle thinks you ought to marry in your own country.' Isabel listened to this assertion with some interest. It had never occurred to her that Mr. Touchett was likely to discuss her matrimonial prospects with Lord Warburton. "'Has he told you that?' "'I remember his making the remark. He spoke, perhaps, of Americans generally.' "'He appears himself to have found it very pleasant to live in England.' Isabel spoke in a manner that might have seemed a little perverse, but which expressed both her constant perception of her uncle's outward felicity and her general disposition to elude any obligation to take a restricted view. It gave her companion hope, and he immediately cried with warmth, "'Ah, my dear Miss Archer, old England's a very good sort of country, you know, and it will be still better when we've furbished it up a little.' "'Oh, don't furbish it, Lord Warburton. Leave it alone. I like it this way.' "'Well, then, if you like it, I'm more and more unable to see your objection to what I propose. "'I'm afraid I can't make you understand. "'You ought at least to try. I've a fair intelligence. "'Are you afraid—afraid of climate? We can easily live elsewhere, you know. "'You can pick out your climate the whole world over.' These words were uttered with the breadth of candour that was like the embrace of strong arms, that was like the fragrance straight in her face, and by his clean breathing lips, of she knew not what strange gardens, what charged airs. She would have given her little finger at that moment to feel strongly and simply the impulse to answer, "'Lord Warburton, it's impossible for me to do better in this wonderful world, I think, than commit myself very gratefully to your loyalty.' but though she was lost in admiration of her opportunity, she managed to move back into the deepest shade of it, even as some wild-caught creature in a vast cage. The splendid security so offered her was not the greatest she could conceive. What she finally bethought herself of saying was something very different, something that deferred the need of really facing her crisis. "'Don't think me unkind if I ask you to say no more about this to-day.' "'Certainly, certainly,' her companion cried. "'I wouldn't bore you for the world. "'You've given me a great deal to think about, "'and I promise you to do it justice. "'That's all I ask of you, of course, "'and that you'll remember how absolutely my happiness is in your hands.' "'Isabel listened with extreme respect to this admonition, "'but she said after a minute, I must tell you that what I think I shall think about is some way of letting you know that what you ask is impossible, letting you know it without making you miserable. There's no way to do that, Miss Archer. I won't say that if you refuse me you'll kill me. I shall not die of it. But I shall do worse. I shall live to no purpose. You'll live to marry a better woman than I. Don't say that, please said Lord Warburton very gravely. That's fair to neither of us. To marry a worse one, then. If there are better women than you, I prefer the bad ones. That's all I can say. He went on with the same earnestness. There's no accounting for tastes. His gravity made her feel equally grave, and she showed it by again requesting him to drop the subject for the present. I'll speak to you myself, very soon, "'Perhaps I shall write to you.' "'At your convenience, yes,' he replied. "'Whatever time you take, it must seem to me long, "'and I suppose I must make the best of that.' 
I shall not keep you in suspense. I only want to collect my mind a little. He gave a melancholy sigh and stood looking at her a moment, with his hands behind him, giving short, nervous shakes to his hunting-crop. "'Do you know I'm very much afraid of it, of that remarkable mind of yours?' Our heroine's biographer can scarcely tell why, but the question made her start and brought a conscious blush to her cheek. She returned his look a moment, and then, with a note in her voice that might almost have appealed to his compassion, "'So am I, my lord,' she oddly exclaimed. His compassion was not stirred, however. All he possessed of the faculty of pity was needed at home. "'Ah, be merciful, be merciful,' he murmured. "'I think you had better go,' said Isabel. "'I'll write to you.' "'Very good, but whatever you write I'll come and see you, you know.' And then he stood reflecting, his eyes fixed on the observant countenance of Bunchy, who had the air of having understood all that had been said, and of pretending to carry off the indiscretion by a simulated fit of curiosity as to the roots of an ancient oak. "'There's one thing more,' he went on. "'You know, if you don't like Lockley, if you think it's damp or anything of that sort, you need never go within fifty miles of it. It's not damp, by the way. I've had the house thoroughly examined. It's perfectly safe and right. But if you shouldn't fancy it, you needn't dream of living in it. There's no difficulty, whatever, about that. There are plenty of houses. I thought I'd just mention it. Some people don't like a moat, you know. Good-bye. I adore a moat, said Isabel. Good-bye. He held out his hand, and she gave him hers a moment, a moment long enough for him to bend his handsome bared head and kiss it. Then, still agitating in his mastered emotion, his implement of the chase, he walked rapidly away. He was evidently much upset. Isabel herself was upset, but she had not been affected as she would have imagined. What she felt was not a great responsibility, a great difficulty of choice. It appeared to her there had been no choice in the question. She couldn't marry Lord Warburton. The idea failed to support any enlightened prejudice in favour of the free exploration of life that she had hitherto entertained, or was now capable of entertaining. She must write this to him, she must convince him, and that duty was comparatively simple. But what disturbed her, in the sense that it struck her with wonderment, was this very fact that it cost her so little to refuse a magnificent chance. With whatever qualifications one would, Lord Warburton had offered her a great opportunity. The situation might have discomforts, might contain oppressive, might contain narrowing elements, might prove really but a stupefying anodyne. But she did her sex no injustice in believing that nineteen women out of twenty would have accommodated themselves to it without a pang. Why, then, upon her also should it not irresistibly impose itself? Who was she, what was she, that she should hold herself superior? What view of life, what design upon fate, what conception of happiness had she that pretended to be larger than these large, these fabulous occasions? If she wouldn't do such a thing as that, then she must do great things. She must do something greater. Poor Isabel found ground to remind herself from time to time that she must not be too proud, and nothing could be more sincere than her prayer to be delivered from such a danger. 
the isolation and loneliness of pride had for her mind the horror of a desert place if it had been pride that interfered with her accepting lord warburton such a betise was singularly misplaced and she was so conscious of liking him that she ventured to assure herself it was the very softness and the fine intelligence of sympathy she liked him too much to marry him that was the truth something assured her there was a fallacy somewhere in the glowing logic of the proposition as he saw it even though she mightn't put her very finest finger-point on it and to inflict upon a man who offered so much a wife with a tendency to criticise would be a peculiarly discreditable act she had promised him she would consider his question and when after he had left her she wandered back to the bench where he had found her and lost herself in meditation it might have seemed that she was keeping her vow but this was not the case she was wondering if she were not a cold hard priggish person and on her at last getting up and going rather quickly back to the house felt as she had said to her friend really frightened at herself End of chapter 12 Chapter 13 of The Portrait of a Lady by Henry James This LibriVox recording is in the public domain It was this feeling and not the wish to ask advice she had no desire whatever for that that led her to speak to her uncle of what had taken place she wished to speak to someone she should feel more natural more human and her uncle for this purpose presented himself in a more attractive light than either her aunt or her friend henrietta her cousin of course was a possible confidant but she would have had to do herself violence to air this special secret to ralph so the next day after breakfast she sought her occasion her uncle never left his apartment till the afternoon but he received his cronies as he said in his dressing-room isabel had quite taken her place in the class so designated which for the rest included the old man's son his physician his personal servant and even miss stackpole mrs touchett did not figure in the list and this was an obstacle the less to isabel's finding her host alone he sat in a complicated mechanical chair at the open window of his room looking westward over the park and the river with his newspapers and letters piled up beside him his toilet freshly and minutely made and his smooth speculative face composed to benevolent expectation she approached her point directly i think i ought to let you know that lord warburton has asked me to marry him i suppose i ought to tell my aunt but it seems best to tell you first the old man expressed no surprise but thanked her for the confidence she showed him do you mind telling me whether you accepted him he then inquired i've not answered him definitely yet i've taken a little time to think of it because that seems more respectful but i shall not accept him mr touchett made no comment upon this he had the air of thinking that whatever interest he might take in the matter from the point of view of sociability he had no active voice in it well i told you you'd be a success over here americans are highly appreciated very highly indeed said isabel but at the cost of seeming both tasteless and ungrateful i don't think i can marry lord warburton well her uncle went on of course an old man can't judge for a young lady i'm glad you didn't ask me before you made up your mind i suppose i ought to tell you 
he added slowly, but as if it were not of much consequence, that I've known all about it these three days. About Lord Warburton's state of mind? About his intentions, as they say here. He wrote me a very pleasant letter telling me all about them. Should you like to see his letter? the old man obligingly asked. Thank you. I don't think I care about that. But I'm glad he wrote to you. It was right that he should, and he would be certain to do what was right. Ah, well, I guess you do like him, Mr. Touchett declared. You needn't pretend you don't. I like him extremely. I'm very free to admit that. But I don't wish to marry anyone just now. You think someone may come along whom you may like better. Well, that's very likely, said Mr. Touchett, who appeared to wish to show his kindness to the girl by easing off her decision, as it were, and finding cheerful reasons for it. I don't care if I don't meet anyone else. I like Lord Warburton quite well enough. She fell into that appearance of a sudden change of point of view, with which she sometimes startled and even displeased her interlocutors. Her uncle, however, seemed proof against either of these impressions. "'He's a very fine man,' he resumed in a tone which might have passed for that of encouragement. "'His letter was one of the pleasantest I've received for some weeks. I suppose one of the reasons I liked it was that it was all about you. That is all except the part that was about himself. I suppose he told you all that.' "'He would have told me everything I wished to ask him,' Isabel said. "'But you didn't feel curious?' "'My curiosity would have been idle.' once I had determined to decline his offer. "'You didn't find it sufficiently attractive?' Mr. Touchett inquired. She was silent a little. "'I suppose it was that,' she presently admitted. "'But I don't know why.' "'Fortunately, ladies are not obliged to give reasons,' said her uncle. "'There's a great deal that's attractive about such an idea, but I don't see why the English should want to entice us away from our native land.' I know that we try to attract them over there, but that's because our population is insufficient. Here, you know, they're rather crowded. However, I presume there's room for charming young ladies everywhere. There seems to have been room here for you, said Isabel, whose eyes had been wandering over the large pleasure spaces of the park. Mr. Touchett gave a shrewd, conscious smile. There's room everywhere, my dear, if you'll pay for it. I sometimes think I've paid too much for this. Perhaps you also might have to pay too much. Perhaps I might, the girl replied. The suggestion gave her something more definite to rest on than she had found in her own thoughts, and the fact of this association of her uncle's mild acuteness with her dilemma seemed to prove that she was concerned with the natural and reasonable emotions of life, and not altogether a victim to intellectual eagerness and vague ambitions— ambitions reaching beyond lord warburton's beautiful appeal reaching to something indefinable and possibly not commendable in so far as the indefinable had an influence upon isabel's behaviour at this juncture it was not the conception even unformulated of a union with caspar goodwood for however she might have resisted the conquest at her english suitor's large quiet hands she was at least as far removed from the disposition to let the young man from boston take positive possession of her the sentiment in which she sought refuge after reading his letter was a critical view of his having come abroad, for it was part of the influence he had upon her that he seemed to deprive her of the sense of freedom. There was a disagreeably strong push, a kind of hardness of presence, 
in his way of rising before her. She had been haunted at moments by the image, by the danger of his disapproval, and had wondered, a consideration she had never paid in equal degree to anyone else, whether he would like what she did. The difficulty was that more than any man she had ever known, more than poor Lord Warburton, she had begun now to give his lordship the benefit of this epithet, Caspar Goodwood expressed for her an energy, and she had already felt it as a power that was of his very nature. It was in no degree a matter of his advantages, it was a matter of the spirit that sat in his clear burning eyes, like some tireless watcher at a window. She might like it or not, but he insisted ever, with his whole weight and force, even in one's usual contact with him, one had to reckon with that. The idea of a diminished liberty was particularly disagreeable to her at present, since she had just given a sort of personal accent to her independence, by looking so straight at Lord Warburton's big bribe, and yet turning away from it. Sometimes Caspar Goodwood had seemed to range himself on the side of her destiny, to be the stubbornest fact she knew. She said to herself at such moments that she might evade him for a time, but that she must make terms with him at last, terms which would be certain to be favourable to himself. Her impulse had been to avail herself of the things that helped her to resist such an obligation, and this impulse had been much concerned in her eager acceptance of her aunt's invitation, which had come to her at an hour when she expected from day to day to see Mr. Goodwood, and when she was glad to have an answer ready for something she was sure he would say to her. When she had told him at Albany, on the evening of Mrs. Touchett's visit, that she couldn't then discuss difficult questions, dazzled as she was by the great immediate opening of her aunt's offer of Europe, he declared that this was no answer at all, and it was now to obtain a better one that he was following her across the sea. To say to herself that he was a kind of grim fate was well enough for a fanciful young woman who was able to take much for granted in him, but the reader has a right to a nearer and a clearer view. He was the son of a proprietor of well-known cotton mills in Massachusetts, a gentleman who had accumulated a considerable fortune in the exercise of this industry. Caspar at present managed the works, and with a judgment and a temper which, in spite of keen competition and languid years, had kept their prosperity from dwindling. He had received the better part of his education at Harvard College, where, however, he had gained renown rather as a gymnast and an oarsman than as a gleaner of more dispersed knowledge. Later on he had learned that the finer intelligence, too, could vault and pull and strain, might even, breaking the record, treat itself to rare exploits. He had thus discovered in himself a sharp eye for the mystery of mechanics, and had invented an improvement in the cotton-spinning process, which was now largely used and was known by his name. You might have seen it in the newspapers in connection with this fruitful contrivance, assurance of which he had given to Isabel by showing her in the columns of the New York interviewer an exhaustive article on the Goodwood patent, an article not prepared by Miss Stackpole, friendly as she had proved herself to his more sentimental interests. There were intricate, bristling things he rejoiced in. He liked to organize, to contend, to administer. He could make people work his will, believe in him, march before him and justify him. This was the art, as they said, of managing men, which rested in him further on a bold though brooding ambition. It struck those who knew him well that he might do greater things than carry on a cotton factory. There was nothing cottony about Caspar Goodwood, and his friends took for granted that he would somehow and somewhere write himself in bigger letters. But it was as if something large and confused, something dark and ugly, would have to call upon him. 
he was not after all in harmony with mere smug peace and greed and gain an order of things of which the vital breath was ubiquitous advertisement it pleased isabel to believe that he might have ridden on a plunging steed the whirlwind of a great war a war like the civil strife that had over-darkened her conscious childhood and his ripening youth she liked at any rate this idea of his being by character and in fact a mover of men liked it much better than some other points in his nature and aspect she cared nothing for his cotton mill the goodwood patent left her imagination absolutely cold she wished him no ounce less of his manhood but she sometimes thought he would be rather nicer if he looked for instance a little differently his jaw was too square and set and his figure too straight and stiff these things suggested a want of easy consonance with the deeper rhythms of life then she viewed with reserve a habit he had of dressing always in the same manner it was not apparently that he wore the same clothes continually for on the contrary his garments had a way of looking rather too new but they all seemed of the same piece the figure the stuff was so drearily usual she had reminded herself more than once that this was a frivolous objection to a person of his importance and then she had amended the rebuke by saying that it would be a frivolous objection only if she were in love with him she was not in love with him and therefore might criticise his small defects as well as his great which latter consisted in the collective reproach of his being too serious or rather not of his being so since one could never be but certainly of his seeming so he showed his appetites and designs too simply and artlessly when one was alone with him he talked too much about the same subject and when other people were present he talked too little about anything and yet he was of supremely strong clean make which was so much she saw the different fitted parts of him as she had seen in museums and portraits the different fitted parts of armoured warriors and plates of steel handsomely inlaid with gold it was very strange where ever was any tangible link between her impression and her act caspar goodwood had never corresponded to her idea of a delightful person and she supposed that this was why he left her so harshly critical when however lord warburton who not only did correspond with it but gave an extension to the term appealed to her approval she found herself still unsatisfied it was certainly strange the sense of her incoherence was not a help to answering mr goodwood's letter and isabel determined to leave it a while unhonoured if he had determined to persecute her he must take the consequences foremost among which was his being left to perceive how little it charmed her that he should come down to garden court she was already liable to the incursions of one suitor at this place and though it might be pleasant to be appreciated in opposite quarters there was a kind of grossness in entertaining two such passionate pleaders at once even in a case where the entertainment should consist of dismissing them she made no reply to mr goodwood but at the end of three days she wrote to lord warburton and the letter belongs to our history dear lord warburton a great deal of earnest thought has not led me to change my mind about the suggestion you were so kind as to make to me the other day i am not i am really and truly not able to regard you in the light of a companion for life or to think of your home your various homes as the settled seat of my existence these things cannot be reasoned about and i very earnestly entreat you not to return to the subject we discussed so exhaustively we see our lives from our own point of view that is the privilege of the weakest and humblest of us and i shall never be able to see mine in the manner you proposed kindly let this suffice you 
and do me the justice to believe that i have given your proposal the deeply respectful consideration it deserves it is with this very great regard that i remain sincerely yours isabel archer while the author of this missive was making up her mind to dispatch it henrietta stackpole formed a resolve which was accompanied by no demur she invited ralph touchett to take a walk with her in the garden and when he had assented with that alacrity which seemed constantly to testify to his high expectations she informed him that she had a favour to ask of him it may be admitted that at this information the young man flinched for we know that miss stackpole had struck him as apt to push an advantage the alarm was unreasoned however for he was clear about the area of her indiscretion as little as advised of its vertical depth and he made a very civil profession of the desire to serve her he was afraid of her and presently told her so when you look at me in a certain way my knees knock together my faculties desert me i'm filled with trepidation and i ask only for strength to execute your commands you've an address that i've never encountered in any woman well henrietta replied good-humouredly if i had not known before that you were trying somehow to abash me i should know it now of course i'm easy game i was brought up with such different customs and ideas i'm not used to your arbitrary standards and i've never been spoken to in america as you have spoken to me if a gentleman conversing with me over there was to speak to me like that i shouldn't know what to make of it we take everything more naturally over there and after all we're a great deal more simple i admit that i'm very simple myself of course if you choose to laugh at me for it you're very welcome but i think on the whole i would rather be myself than you i'm quite content to be myself i don't want to change there are plenty of people that appreciate me just as i am it's true they're nice fresh free-born americans henrietta had lately taken up the tone of helpless innocence and large concession i want you to assist me a little she went on i don't care in the least whether i amuse you while you do so or rather i'm perfectly willing your amusement should be your reward i want you to help me about isabel has she injured you ralph asked if she had i shouldn't mind and i should never tell you what i'm afraid of is that she'll injure herself i think that's very possible said ralph his companion stopped in the garden walk fixing on him perhaps the very gaze that unnerved him that too would amuse you i suppose the way you do say things i never heard any one so indifferent to isabel ah oh, not that well you're not in love with her i hope how can that be when i'm in love with another you're in love with yourself that's the other miss stackpole declared much good may it do you but if you wish to be serious once in your life here's a chance and if you really care for your cousin here's an opportunity to prove it i don't expect you to understand her that's too much to ask but you needn't do that to grant my favour i'll supply the necessary intelligence i shall enjoy that immensely ralph exclaimed i'll be caliban and you shall be ariel you're not at all like caliban because you're sophisticated and caliban was not but i'm not talking about imaginary characters i'm talking about isabel isabel is intensely real what i wish to tell you is that i find her fearfully changed since you came do you mean since i came and before i came she's not the same as she once so beautifully was as she was in america yes in america i suppose you know she comes from there she can't help it but she does do you want to change her back again of course i do and i want you to help me ah said ralph i'm only caliban i'm not prospero 
you were prospero enough to make her what she's become you've acted on isabel archer since she came here mr touchett i my dear miss stackpole never in the world isabel archer has acted on me yes she acts on every one but i've been absolutely passive you're too passive then you had better stir yourself and be careful isabel's changing every day she's drifting away right out to sea i've watched her and i can see it she's not the bright american girl she was she's taking different views a different color and turning away from her old ideals i want to save those ideals mr touchett and that's where you come in not surely as an ideal well i hope not henrietta replied promptly i've got a fear in my heart that she's going to marry one of these fell europeans and i want to prevent it ah i see cried ralph and to prevent it you want me to step in and marry her not quite that remedy would be as bad as the disease for you're the typical the fell european from whom i wish to rescue her no i wish you to take an interest in another person a young man to whom she once gave great encouragement and whom she now doesn't seem to think good enough he's a thoroughly grand man and a very dear friend of mine and i wish very much you would invite him to pay a visit here ralph was much puzzled by this appeal and it is perhaps not to the credit of his purity of mind that he failed to look at it in first in the simplest light it wore to his eyes a torturous air and his fault was that he was not quite sure that anything in the world could really be as candid as this request of miss stackpole's appeared that a young woman should demand that a gentleman whom she described as her very dear friend should be furnished with an opportunity to make himself agreeable to another young woman a young woman whose attention had wandered and whose charms were greater this was an anomaly which for the moment challenged all his ingenuity of interpretation to read between the lines was easier than to follow the text and to suppose that miss stackpole wished the gentleman invited to garden court on her own account was the sign not so much of a vulgar as of an embarrassed mind even from this venial act of vulgarity however ralph was saved and saved by a force that i can only speak of as inspiration with no more outward light on the subject than he already possessed he suddenly acquired the conviction that it would be a sovereign injustice to the correspondent of the interviewer to assign a dishonourable motive to any act of hers this conviction passed into his mind with extreme rapidity it was perhaps kindled by the pure radiance of the young lady's imperturbable gaze he returned this challenge a moment consciously resisting an inclination to frown as one frowns in the presence of larger luminaries who's the gentleman you speak of mr caspar goodwood of boston he has been extremely attentive to isabel just as devoted to her as he can live he has followed her out here and he's at present in london i don't know his address but i guess i can obtain it i've never heard of him said ralph well i suppose you haven't heard of every one i don't believe he has ever heard of you but that's no reason why isabel shouldn't marry him ralph gave a mild ambiguous laugh what a rage you have for marrying people do you remember how you wanted to marry me the other day i've got over that you don't know how to take such ideas mr goodwood does however and that's what i like about him he's a splendid man and a perfect gentleman and isabel knows it is she very fond of him if she isn't she ought to be he's simply wrapped up in her and you wish me to ask him here said ralph reflectively it would be an act of true hospitality caspar goodwood ralph continued it's a rather striking name i don't care anything about his name it might be ezekiel jenkins and i should say the same he's the only man i have ever seen whom i think worthy of isabel 
you are a very devoted friend said ralph of course i am if you say that to pour scorn on me i don't care i don't say it to pour scorn on you i'm very much struck with it you're more satiric than ever but i advise you not to laugh at mr goodwood i assure you i'm very serious you ought to understand that said ralph in a moment his companion understood it i believe you are now you're too serious you're difficult to please oh you're very serious indeed you won't invite mr goodwood i don't know said ralph i'm capable of strange things tell me a little about mr goodwood what's he like he's just the opposite of you he's at the head of a cotton factory a very fine one has he pleasant manners asked ralph splendid manners in the american style would he be an agreeable member of our little circle i don't think he'd care much about our little circle he'd concentrate on isabel and how would my cousin like that very possibly not at all but it will be good for her it will call back her thoughts call them back from where from foreign parts and other unnatural places three months ago she gave mr goodwood every reason to suppose he was acceptable to her and it's not worthy of isabel to go back on a real friend simply because she has changed the scene i've changed the scene too and the effect of it has been to make me care more for my old associations than ever it's my belief that the sooner isabel changes it back again the better i know her well enough to know that she would never be truly happy over here and i wish her to form some strong american tie that will act as a preservative aren't you perhaps a little too much in a hurry ralph inquired don't you think you ought to give her more of a chance in poor old england a chance to ruin her bright young life one's never too much in a hurry to save a precious human creature from drowning as i understand it then said ralph you wish me to push mr goodwood overboard after her do you know he added that i've never heard her mention his name henrietta gave a brilliant smile i'm delighted to hear that it proves how much she thinks of him ralph appeared to allow that there was a good deal in this and he surrendered to thought while his companion watched him askance if i should invite mr goodwood he finally said it would be to quarrel with him don't do that he'd prove the better man you certainly are doing your best to make me hate him i really don't think i can ask him i should be afraid of being rude to him it's just as you please henrietta returned i had no idea you were in love with her yourself do you really believe that the young man asked with lifted eyebrows that's the most natural speech i've ever heard you make of course i believe it miss stackpole ingeniously said well ralph concluded to prove to you that you're wrong i'll invite him it must be of course as a friend of yours it will not be as a friend of mine that he'll come and it will not be to prove to me that i'm wrong that you'll ask him but to prove it to yourself these last words of miss stackpole's on which the two presently separated contained an amount of truth which ralph touchett was obliged to recognize but it so far took the edge from too sharp a recognition that in spite of his suspecting it would be rather more indiscreet to keep than to break his promise he wrote mr goodwood a note of six lines expressing the pleasure it would give mr touchett the elder that he should join a little party at garden court of which miss stackpole was a valued member having sent his letter to the care of a banker whom henrietta suggested he waited in some suspense he had heard this fresh formidable figure named for the first time for when his mother had mentioned on her arrival that there was a story about the girls having an admirer at home 
the idea had seemed deficient in reality and he had taken no pains to ask questions the answers to which would involve only the vague or the disagreeable now however the native admiration of which his cousin was the object had become more concrete it took the form of a young man who had followed her to london who was interested in a cotton mill and had manners in the most splendid of the american styles ralph had two theories about this either his passion was a sentimental fiction of miss stackpole's there was always a sort of tacit understanding among women born of the solidarity of the sex that they should discover or invent lovers for each other in which case he was not to be feared and would probably not accept the invitation or else he would accept the invitation and in this event prove himself a creature too irrational to demand further consideration the latter clause of ralph's argument might have seemed incoherent but it embodied his conviction that if mr goodwood were interested in isabel in the serious manner described by miss stackpole he would not care to present himself at gardencourt on a summons from the latter lady on this supposition said ralph he must regard her as a thorn on the stem of his rose as an intercessor he must find her wanting intact two days after he had sent his invitation he received a very short note from caspar goodwood thanking him for it regretting that other engagements made a visit to gardencourt impossible and presenting many compliments to miss stackpole ralph handed the note to henrietta who when she had read it exclaimed well i never have heard of anything so stiff i am afraid he doesn't care so much about my cousin as you suppose ralph observed no it's not that it's some subtler motive his nature's very deep but i'm determined to fathom it and i shall write to him to know what he means his refusal of ralph's overtures was vaguely disconcerting from the moment he declined to come to gardencourt our friend began to think him of importance he asked himself what it signified to him whether isabel's admirers should be desperadoes or laggards they were not rivals of his and were perfectly welcome to act out their genius nevertheless he felt much curiosity as to the result of miss stackpole's promised enquiry into the causes of mr goodwood's stiffness a curiosity for the present ungratified inasmuch as when he asked her three days later if she had written to london she was obliged to confess that she had written in vain mr goodwood had not replied i suppose he's thinking it over she said he thinks everything over he's not really at all impetuous but i'm accustomed to having my letters answered the same day she presently proposed to isabel at all events that they should make an excursion to london together if i must tell the truth she observed i'm not seeing much at this place and i shouldn't think you were either i've not even seen that aristocrat what's his name lord washburton he seems to let you severely alone lord warburton's coming to-morrow i happen to know replied her friend who had received a note from the master of lockley in answer to her own letter you'll have every opportunity of turning him inside out well he may do for one letter but what's one letter when you want to write fifty i've described all the scenery in this vicinity and raved about all the old women and donkeys you may say what you please scenery doesn't make a vital letter i must go back to london and get some impressions of real life i was there but three days before i came away and that's hardly time to get in touch as isabel on her journey from new york to gardencourt had seen even less of the british capital than this it appeared a happy suggestion of henrietta's that the two should go thither on a visit of pleasure the idea struck isabel as charming she was curious of the thick detail of london which had always loomed large and rich to her they turned over their schemes together and indulged in visions of romantic hours 
they would stay at some picturesque old inn one of the inns described by dickens and drive over the town in those delightful hansoms henrietta was a literary woman and the great advantage of being a literary woman was that you could go everywhere and do anything they would dine at a coffee-house and go afterwards to the play they would frequent the abbey and the british museum and find out where dr johnson had lived and goldsmith and addison isabel grew eager and presently unveiled the bright vision to ralph who burst into a fit of laughter which scarce expressed the sympathy she had desired it's a delightful plan he said i advise you to go to the duke's head in covent garden an easy informal old-fashioned place and i'll have you put down at my club do you mean it's improper isabel asked dear me isn't anything proper here with henrietta surely i may go anywhere she isn't hampered in that way she has travelled over the whole american continent and can at least find her way about this minute island ah then said ralph let me take advantage of her protection to go up to town as well i may never have a chance to travel so safely End of chapter 13「Miss Stackpole would have prepared to start immediately, but Isabel, as we have seen, had been notified that Lord Warburton would come again to Gardencourt, and she believed it her duty to remain there and see him. For four or five days he had made no response to her letter. Then he had written very briefly to say he would come to luncheon two days later. There was something in these delays and postponements that touched the girl, and renewed her sense of his desire to be considerate and patient, not to appear to urge her too grossly, a consideration the more studied that she was so sure he really liked her. Isabel told her uncle she had written to him, mentioning also his intention of coming, and the old man, in consequence, left his room earlier than usual and made his appearance at the two o'clock repast. This was by no means an act of vigilance on his part, but the fruit of a benevolent belief that his being of the company might help to cover any conjoined straying away in case isabel should give their noble visitor another hearing that personage drove over from lockleigh and brought the elder of his sisters with him a measure presumably dictated by reflections of the same order as mr touchett's the two visitors were introduced to miss stackpole who at luncheon occupied a seat adjoining lord warburton's isabel who was nervous and had no relish for the prospect of again arguing the question he had so prematurely opened could not help admiring his good-humoured self-possession which quite disguised the symptoms of that preoccupation with her presence it was natural she should suppose him to feel he neither looked at her nor spoke to her and the only sign of his emotion was that he avoided meeting her eyes he had plenty of talk for the others however and he appeared to eat his luncheon with discrimination and appetite Miss Molyneux, who had a smooth, nun-like forehead, and wore a large silver cross suspended from her neck, was evidently preoccupied with Henrietta Stackpole, upon whom her eyes constantly rested in a manner suggesting a conflict between deep alienation and yearning wonder. Of the two ladies from Lockley, she was the one Isabel had liked best. There was such a world of hereditary quiet in her. Isabel was sure, moreover, that her mild forehead and silver cross referred to some weird Anglican mystery, some delightful reinstitution, perhaps, of the quaint office of the canoness. She wondered what Miss Molyneux would think of her if she knew Miss Archer had refused her brother, and then she felt sure that Miss Molyneux would never know, 
that Lord Warburton never told her such things. He was fond of her, and kind to her, but on the whole he told her little. Such, at least, was Isabel's theory. When, at table, she was not occupied in conversation, she was usually occupied in forming theories about her neighbours. According to Isabel, if Miss Molyneux should ever learn what had passed between Miss Archer and Lord Warburton, she would probably be shocked at such a girl's failure to rise. Or no, rather, this was our heroine's last position, she would impute to the young American but a due consciousness of inequality. Whatever Isabel might have made of her opportunities, at all events, Henrietta Stackpole was by no means disposed to neglect those in which she now found herself immersed. "'Do you know you're the first lord I've ever seen?' she said very promptly to her neighbour. "'I suppose you think I'm awfully benighted.' "'You've escaped seeing some very ugly men,' Lord Warburton answered, looking a trifle absently about the table. "'Are they very ugly?' They try to make us believe in America that they're all handsome and magnificent, and that they wear wonderful robes and crowns. "'Ah, the robes and crowns are gone out of fashion,' said Lord Warburton. "'Like your tomahawks and revolvers.' "'I'm sorry for that. I think an aristocracy ought to be splendid,' Henrietta declared. "'If it's not, what is it?' "'Oh, you know, it isn't much at the best,' her neighbour allowed. "'Won't you have a potato?' "'I don't care much for these European potatoes. I shouldn't know you from an ordinary American gentleman.' "'Do talk to me as if I were one,' said Lord Warburton. "'I don't see how you manage to get on without potatoes. You must find so few things to eat over here.' Henrietta was silent a little. There was a chance he was not sincere. "'I've had hardly any appetite since I've been here,' she went on at last. "'So it doesn't much matter.' "'I don't approve of you, you know. I feel as if I ought to tell you that.' "'Don't approve of me?' "'Yes. I don't suppose anyone ever said such a thing to you before, did they? I don't approve of lords as an institution. I think the world has got beyond them. Far beyond.' "'Oh, so do I. I don't approve of myself in the least. Sometimes it comes over me. How I should object to myself if I were not myself, don't you know?' "'But that's rather good, by the way, not to be vainglorious.' "'Why don't you give it up, then?' Miss Stackpole inquired. "'Give up, ah?" Uh, asked Lord Warburton, meeting her harsh inflection with a very mellow one. "'Give up being a lord?' "'Oh, I'm so little of one. One would really forget all about it if you wretched Americans were not constantly reminding one. However, I do think of giving it up.' the little there is left of it, one of these days. "'I should like to see you do it,' Henrietta exclaimed rather grimly. "'I'll invite you to the ceremony. We'll have a supper and a dance.' "'Well,' said Miss Stackpole, "'I like to see all sides. I don't approve of a privileged class, but I like to hear what they have to say for themselves.' "'Mighty little, as you see.' "'I should like to draw you out a little more,' Henrietta continued. "'But you're always looking away. "'You're afraid of meeting my eye. "'I see you want to escape me.' "'No, I'm only looking for those despised potatoes. "'Please explain about that young lady, your sister. "'I don't understand about her. "'Is she a lady?' "'She's a capital good girl.' "'I don't like the way you say that, "'as if you wanted to change the subject. "'Is her position inferior to yours?' 
we neither of us have any position to speak of but she's better off than i because she has none of the bother yes she doesn't look as if she had much bother i wish i had as little bother as that you do produce quiet people over here whatever else you may do ah you see one takes life easily on the whole said lord warburton and then you know we're very dull ah we can be dull when we try i should advise you to try something else i shouldn't know what to talk to your sister about she looks so different is that silver cross a badge a badge a sign of rank lord warburton's glance had wandered a good deal but at this it met the gaze of his neighbour oh yes he answered in a moment the women go in for those things the silver cross is worn by the eldest daughters of viscounts which was his harmless revenge for having occasionally had his credulity too easily engaged in america after luncheon he proposed to isabel to come into the gallery and look at the pictures and though she knew he had seen the pictures twenty times she complied without criticising this pretext her conscience now was very easy ever since she had sent him her letter she had felt particularly light of spirit he walked slowly to the end of the gallery staring at its contents and saying nothing and then suddenly he broke out i hoped you wouldn't write to me that way it was the only way lord warburton said the girl do try and believe it if i could believe it of course i should let you alone but we can't believe by willing it and i confess i don't understand i could understand your disliking me that i could understand well but that you should admit you do what have i admitted isabel interrupted turning slightly pale that you think me a good fellow isn't that it she said nothing and he went on you don't seem to have any reason and that gives me a sense of injustice i have a reason lord warburton she said it in a tone that made his heart contract i should like very much to know it i'll tell you some day when there's more to show for it excuse my saying that in the meantime i must doubt of it you make me very unhappy said isabel i'm not sorry for that it may help you to know what i feel will you kindly answer me a question isabel made no audible assent but he apparently saw in her eyes something that gave him courage to go on do you prefer someone else that's a question i'd rather not answer ah you do then her suitor murmured with bitterness the bitterness touched her and she cried out you're mistaken i don't he sat down on a bench unceremoniously doggedly like a man in trouble leaning his elbows on his knees and staring at the floor i can't even be glad of that he said at last throwing himself back against the wall for that would be an excuse she raised her eyebrows in surprise an excuse must i excuse myself he paid however no answer to the question another idea had come into his head is it my political opinions do you think i go too far i can't object to your political opinions because i don't understand them you don't care what i think he cried getting up it's all the same to you isabel walked to the other side of the gallery and stood there showing him her charming back her light slim figure the length of her white neck as she bent her head and the density of her dark braids 
she stopped in front of a small picture as if for the purpose of examining it and there was something so young and free in her movement that her very pliancy seemed to mock at him her eyes however saw nothing they had been suddenly suffused with tears in a moment he followed her and by this time she had brushed her tears away but when she turned round her face was pale and the expression of her eyes strange that reason that i wouldn't tell you i'll tell it to you after all it's that i can't escape my fate your fate i should try to escape it if i were to marry you i don't understand why should not that be your fate as well as anything else because it's not said isabel femininely i know it's not it's not my fate to give up i know it can't be poor lord warburton stared an interrogative point in either eye do you call marrying me giving up not in the usual sense it's getting 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 a great deal but it's giving up other chances other chances for what i don't mean chances to marry said isabel her colour quickly coming back to her and then she stopped looking down with a deep frown as if it were hopeless to attempt to make her meaning clear i don't think it presumptuous in me to suggest that you'll gain more than you'll lose her companion observed i can't escape unhappiness said isabel in marrying you i shall be trying to i don't know whether you'd try to but you certainly would that i must in candour admit he exclaimed with an anxious laugh i mustn't i can't cried the girl well if you're bent on being miserable i don't see why you should make me so whatever charms a life of misery may have for you it has none for me i'm not bent on a life of misery said isabel i've always been intensely determined to be happy and i've often believed i should be i've told people that you can ask them but it comes over me every now and then that i can never be happy in any extraordinary way not by turning away by separating myself by separating yourself from what from life from the usual chances and dangers from what most people know and suffer lord warburton broke into a smile that almost denoted hope why my dear miss archer he began to explain with the most considerate eagerness i don't offer you any exoneration from life or from any chances or dangers whatever i wish i could depend upon it i would for what do you take me pray heaven help me i'm not the emperor of china all i offer you is the chance of taking the common lot in a comfortable sort of way the common lot why i'm devoted to the common lot strike an alliance with me and i promise you you shall have plenty of it you shall separate from nothing whatever not even from your friend miss stackpole she'd never approve of it said isabel trying to smile and take advantage of his side issue despising herself too not a little for doing so are we speaking of miss stackpole his lordship asked impatiently i never saw a person judge things on such theoretic grounds now i suppose you are speaking of me said isabel with humility and she turned away again for she saw miss molyneux entered the gallery accompanied by henrietta and by ralph lord warburton's sister addressed him with a certain timidity 
and reminded him she ought to return home in time for tea, as she was expecting company to partake of it. He made no answer, apparently not having heard her. He was preoccupied, and with good reason. Miss Molyneux, as if he had been royalty, stood like a lady-in-waiting. "'Well, I never, Miss Molyneux,' said Henrietta Stackpole. "'If I wanted to go, he'd have to go. If I wanted my brother to do a thing, he'd have to do it.' "'Oh, Warburton does everything one wants,' Miss Molyneux answered with a quick, shy laugh. "'How very many pictures you have,' she went on, turning to Ralph. "'They look a good many, because they're all put together,' said Ralph. "'But it's really a bad way.' "'Oh, I think it's so nice. I wish we had a gallery at Lockley. I'm so very fond of pictures.' Miss Molyneux went on, persistently, to Ralph, as if she were afraid Miss Stackpole would address her again. Henrietta appeared at once to fascinate and to frighten her. "'Ah, yes, pictures are very convenient,' said Ralph, who appeared to know better what style of reflection was acceptable to her. "'They're so very pleasant when it rains,' the young lady continued. "'It has rained of late so very often.' "'I'm sorry you're going away, Lord Warburton,' said Henrietta. "'I wanted to get a great deal more out of you.' "'I'm not going away,' Lord Warburton answered. "'Your sister says you must. In America the gentlemen obey the ladies.' "'I'm afraid we have some people to tea,' said Miss Molyneux, looking at her brother. "'Very good, my dear, we'll go.' "'I hoped you would resist,' Henrietta exclaimed. "'I wanted to see what Miss Molyneux would do.' "'I never do anything,' said this young lady. "'I suppose in your position it's sufficient for you to exist,' Miss Stackpole returned. "'I should like very much to see you at home.' "'You must come to Lockley again,' said Miss Molyneux very sweetly to Isabel, ignoring this remark of Isabel's friend. Isabel looked into her quiet eyes a moment, and for that moment seemed to see in their grey depths the reflection of everything she had rejected in rejecting Lord Warburton—the peace, the kindness, the honour, the possessions, a deep security and a great exclusion. She kissed Miss Molyneux, and then she said, "'I'm afraid I can never come again.' "'Never again?' "'I'm afraid I'm going away.' "'Oh, I'm so very sorry,' said Miss Molyneux. "'I think that's so very wrong of you.' Lord Warburton watched this little passage. Then he turned away and stared at a picture. Ralph, leaning against the rail before the picture with his hands in his pockets, had for the moment been watching him. "'I should like to see you at home,' said Henrietta, whom Lord Warburton found beside him. "'I should like an hour's talk with you. There are a great many questions I wish to ask you.' "'I shall be delighted to see you,' the proprietor of Lockley answered. "'But I'm certain not to be able to answer many of your questions. When will you come?' "'Whenever Miss Archer will take me. We're thinking of going to London, but we'll go and see you first. I'm determined to get some satisfaction out of you. If it depends upon Miss Archer, I'm afraid you won't get much. She won't come to Lockley. She doesn't like the place. She told me it was lovely, said Henrietta. Lord Warburton hesitated. She won't come all the same. You had better come alone, he added. Henrietta straightened herself and her large eyes expanded. Would you make that remark to an English lady? she inquired with soft asperity. Lord Warburton stared. Yes, if I liked her enough. You'd be careful not to like her enough. 
if miss archer won't visit your place again it's because she doesn't want to take me i know what she thinks of me and i suppose you think the same that i oughtn't to bring in individuals lord warburton was at a loss he had not been made acquainted with miss stackpole's professional character and failed to catch her allusion miss archer has been warning you she therefore went on warning me isn't that why she came off alone with you here to put you on your guard oh dear no said lord warburton brazenly our talk had no such solemn character as that well you've been on your guard intensely i suppose it's natural to you that's just what i wanted to observe and so too miss molyneux she wouldn't commit herself you have been warned anyway henrietta continued addressing this young lady but for you it wasn't necessary i hope not said miss molyneux vaguely miss stackpole takes notes ralph soothingly explained she's a great satirist she sees through us all and she works us up well i must say i have never had such a collection of bad material henrietta declared looking from isabel to lord warburton and from this nobleman to his sister and to ralph there's something the matter with you all you're as dismal as if you got a bad cable you do see through us miss stackpole said ralph in a low tone giving her a little intelligent nod as he led the party out of the gallery there's something the matter with us all isabel came behind these two miss molyneux who decidedly liked her immensely had taken her arm to walk beside her over the polished floor lord warburton strolled on the other side with his hands behind him and his eyes lowered for some moments he said nothing and then is it true you're going to london he asked i believe it has been arranged and when shall you come back in a few days but probably for a very short time i'm going to paris with my aunt when then shall i see you again not for a good while said isabel but some day or other i hope do you really hope it very much he went a few steps in silence then he stopped and put out his hand good-bye good-bye said isabel miss molyneux kissed her again and she let the two depart after it without rejoining henrietta and ralph she retreated to her own room in which apartment before dinner she was found by mrs touchett who had stopped on her way to the salon i may as well tell you said that lady that your uncle has informed me of your relations with lord warburton isabel considered relations they're hardly relations that's the strange part of it he has seen me but three or four times why did you tell your uncle rather than me mrs touchett dispassionately asked again the girl hesitated because he knows lord warburton better yes but i know you better i'm not sure of that said isabel smiling neither am i after all especially when you give me that rather conceited look one would think you were awfully pleased with yourself and had carried off a prize i suppose that when you refuse an offer like lord warburton's it's because you expect to do something better ah my uncle didn't say that cried isabel smiling still end of chapter fourteen Chapter Fifteen of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 
It had been arranged that the two young ladies should proceed to London under Ralph's escort, though Mrs. Touchett looked with little favour on the plan. It was just the sort of plan, she said, that Miss Stackpole would be sure to suggest, and she inquired if the correspondent of the interviewer was to take the party to stay at her favourite boarding-house. "'I don't care where she takes us to stay, so long as there's local colour," said Isabel. "'That's what we're going to London for.' "'I suppose that after a girl has refused an English lord she may do anything,' her aunt rejoined. "'After that one needn't stand on trifles.' "'Should you have liked me to marry Lord Warburton?' Isabel inquired. "'Of course I should. I thought you disliked the English so much. So I do. But it's all the greater reason for making use of them. Is that your idea of marriage? And Isabel ventured to add that her aunt appeared to her to have made very little use of Mr. Touchett. Your uncle's not an English nobleman, said Mrs. Touchett, though even if he had been, I should still probably have taken up my residence in Florence. Do you think Lord Warburton could make me any better than I am? the girl asked with some animation. I don't mean I'm too good to improve. I mean that I don't love Lord Warburton enough to marry him. You did right to refuse him, then? said Mrs. Touchett in her smallest, sparest voice. Only the next great offer you get, I hope you'll manage to come up to your standard. We had better wait till the offer comes before we talk about it. I hope very much I may have no more offers for the present. They upset me completely. You probably won't be troubled with them if you adopt permanently the bohemian manner of life. However, I've promised Ralph not to criticise. I'll do whatever Ralph says is right, Isabel returned. I've unbounded confidence in Ralph. His mother's much obliged to you, this lady dryly laughed. It seems to me, indeed, she ought to feel it, Isabel irrepressibly answered. Ralph had assured her that there would be no violation of decency in their paying a visit, the little party of three, to the sights of the metropolis, but Mrs. Touchett took a different view. Like many ladies of her country who had lived a long time in Europe, she had completely lost her native tact on such points, and in her reaction, not in itself deplorable, against the liberty allowed to young persons beyond the seas, had fallen into gratuitous and exaggerated scruples. Ralph accompanied their visitors to town and established them at a quiet inn in a street that ran at right angles to Piccadilly. His first idea had been to take them to his father's house in Winchester Square, a large, dull mansion, which at this period of the year was shrouded in silence and brown holland. But he bethought himself that, the cook being at Garden Court, there was no one in the house to get them their meals, and Pratt's Hotel accordingly became their resting-place. Ralph, on his side, found quarters in Winchester Square, having a den there of which he was very fond, and being familiar with deeper fears than that of a cold kitchen. He availed himself largely, indeed, of the resources of Pratt's Hotel, beginning his day with an early visit to his fellow-travellers, who had Mr. Pratt in person, in a large, bulging white waistcoat, to remove their dish-covers. Ralph turned up, as he said, after breakfast, and the little party made out a scheme of entertainment for the day. 
as london wears in the month of september a face blank but for its smears of prior service the young man who occasionally took an apologetic tone was obliged to remind his companion to miss stackpole's high derision that there wasn't a creature in town i suppose you mean the aristocracy are absent henrietta answered but i don't think you could have a better proof that if they were absent altogether they wouldn't be missed it seems to me the place is about as full as it can be there's no one here of course but three or four millions of people what is it you call them the lower middle class they're only the population of london and that's of no consequence ralph declared that for him the aristocracy left no void that miss stackpole herself didn't fill and that a more contented man was nowhere at that moment to be found in this he spoke the truth for the stale september days in the huge half-empty town had a charm wrapped in them as a coloured gem might be wrapped in a dusty cloth when he went home at night to the empty house in winchester square after a chain of hours with his comparatively ardent friends he wandered into the big dusky dining-room where the candle he took from the hall table after letting himself in constituted the only illumination the square was still the house was still when he raised one of the windows of the dining-room to let in the air he heard the slow creak of the boots of a lone constable his own step in the empty place seemed loud and sonorous some of the carpets had been raised and whenever he moved he roused a melancholy echo he sat down in one of the armchairs the big dark dining-table twinkled here and there in the small candlelight the pictures on the wall all of them very brown looked vague and incoherent there was a ghostly presence as of dinners long since digested of table-talk that had lost its actuality this hint of the supernatural perhaps had something to do with the fact that his imagination took a flight and that he remained in his chair a long time beyond the hour at which he should have been in bed doing nothing not even reading the evening paper i say he did nothing and i maintain the phrase in the face of the fact that he thought at these moments of isabel to think of isabel could only be for him an idle pursuit leading to nothing and profiting little to any one his cousin had not yet seemed to him so charming as during these days spent in sounding tourist fashion the deeps and shallows of the metropolitan element isabel was full of premises conclusions emotions if she had come in search of local colour she found it everywhere she asked more questions than he could answer and launched brave theories as to historic cause and social effect that he was equally unable to accept or to refute the party went more than once to the british museum and to that brighter palace of art which reclaims for antique variety so large an area of a monotonous suburb they spent a morning in the abbey and went on a penny steamer to the tower they looked at pictures both in public and private collections and sat on various occasions beneath the great trees in kensington gardens henrietta proved an indestructible sightseer and a more lenient judge than ralph had ventured to hope she had indeed many disappointments and london at large suffered from her vivid remembrance of the strong points of the american civic idea but she made the best of its dingy dignities and only heaved an occasional sigh and uttered a desultory well which led no further and lost itself in retrospect the truth was that as she said herself 
she was not in her element i've not a sympathy with inanimate objects she remarked to isabel at the national gallery and she continued to suffer from the meagreness of the glimpse that had as yet been vouchsafed to her of the inner life landscapes by turner and assyrian bulls were a poor substitute for the literary dinner-parties at which she had hoped to meet the genius and renown of great britain where are your public men where are your men and women of intellect she inquired of ralph standing in the middle of trafalgar square as if she had supposed this to be a place where she would naturally meet a few that's one of them on top of the column you say lord nelson was he a lord too wasn't he high enough that they had to stick him a hundred feet in the air that's the past i don't care about the past i want to see some of the leading minds of the present i won't say of the future because i don't believe much in your future poor ralph had few leading minds among his acquaintance and rarely enjoyed the pleasure of buttonholing a celebrity a state of things which appeared to miss stackpole to indicate a deplorable want of enterprise if i were on the other side i should call she said and tell the gentleman whoever he might be that i had heard a great deal about him and had come to see for myself but i gather from what you say that this is not the custom here you seem to have plenty of meaningless customs but none of those that would help along we are in advance certainly i suppose i shall have to give up the social side altogether and henrietta though she went about with her guide-book and pencil and wrote a letter to the interviewer about the tower in which she described the execution of lady jane grey had a sad sense of falling below her mission the incident that had preceded isabel's departure from gardencourt left a painful trace in our young woman's mind when she felt again in her face as from a recurrent wave the cold breath of her last suitor's surprise she could only muffle her head until the air cleared she could not have done less than what she did this was certainly true but her necessity all the same had been as graceless as some physical act in a strained attitude and she felt no desire to take credit for her conduct mixed with this imperfect pride nevertheless was a feeling of freedom which in itself was sweet and which as she wandered through the great city with her ill-matched companions occasionally throbbed into odd demonstrations when she walked in kensington gardens she stopped the children mainly of the poorer sort whom she saw playing in the grass she asked them their names and gave them sixpence and when they were pretty kissed them ralph noticed these quaint charities he noticed everything she did one afternoon that his companions might pass the time he invited them to tea in winchester square and he had the house set in order as much as possible for their visit there was another guest to meet them an amiable bachelor an old friend of ralph's who happened to be in town and for whom prompt commerce with miss stackpole appeared to have neither difficulty nor dread mr bantling a stout sleek smiling man of forty wonderfully dressed universally informed and incoherently amused laughed immoderately at everything henrietta said gave her several cups of tea examined in her society the bric-a-brac of which ralph had a considerable collection and afterwards when the host proposed they should go out into the square and pretend it was a fete champetre walked round the limited enclosure several times with her and at a dozen turns of their talk bounded responsive as with a positive passion for argument to her remarks upon the inner life oh i see 
I dare say you found it very quiet at Garden Court. Naturally, there's not much going on there when there's such a lot of illness about. Touchett's very bad, you know. The doctors have forbidden his being in England at all, and he has only come back to take care of his father. The old man, I believe, has half a dozen things the matter with him. They call it gout, but to my certain knowledge he has organic disease so developed that you may depend upon it he'll go some day soon quite quickly. Of course, that sort of thing makes a dreadfully dull house. I wonder they have people when they can do so little for them. Then I believe Mr. Touchett's always squabbling with his wife. She lives away from her husband, you know, in that extraordinary American way of yours. If you want a house where there's always something going on, I recommend you go down and stay with my sister, Lady Pencil, in Bedfordshire. I'll write to her tomorrow, and I'm sure she'll be delighted to ask you. I know just what you want. You want a house where they go in for theatricals and picnics and that sort of thing. My sister's just that sort of woman. She's always getting up something or other, and she's always glad to have the sort of people who help her. I'm sure she'll ask you down by return of post. She's tremendously fond of distinguished people and writers. She writes herself, you know. But I haven't read everything she's written. It's usually poetry, and I don't go in much for poetry. Unless it's Byron. I suppose you think a great deal of Byron in America? Mr. Bantling continued, expanding in the stimulating air of Miss Stackpole's attention, bringing up his sequences promptly and changing his topic with an easy turn of hand. Yet he nonetheless gracefully kept in sight of the idea, dazzling to Henrietta, of her going to stay with Lady Pencil in Bedfordshire. "'I understand what you want. You want to see some genuine English sport. The Touchets aren't English at all, you know. They have their own habits, their own language, their own food, some odd religion even, I believe, of their own. The old man thinks it's wicked to hunt, I'm told. You must get down to my sister's in time for the theatricals, and I'm sure she'll be glad to give you a part. I'm sure you act well. I know you're very clever.' My sister's forty years old and has seven children, but she's going to play the principal part. Plain as she is, she makes up awfully well, I will say for her. Of course you needn't act if you don't want to. In this manner Mr. Bantling delivered himself while they strolled over the grass in Winchester Square, which, although it had been peppered by the London soot, invited the tread to linger. Henrietta thought her blooming, easy-voiced bachelor, with his impressibility to feminine merit and his splendid range of suggestion, a very agreeable man, and she valued the opportunity he offered her. "'I don't know, but I would go if your sister should ask me. I think it would be my duty. What do you call her name?' "'Pencil. It's an odd name, but it isn't a bad one. I think one name's as good as another, but what's her rank?' "'Oh, she's a baron's wife, a convenient sort of rank. "'You're fine enough, and you're not too fine.' "'I don't know but what she'd be too fine for me. "'What do you call the place she lives in? "'Bedfordshire?' "'She lives away in the northern corner of it. "'It's a tiresome county, but I dare say you won't mind. "'I'll try and run down while you're there.' "'All of this was very pleasant to Miss Stackpole, "'and she was sorry to be obliged to separate "'from Lady Pencil's obliging brother.' But it happened that she had met the day before, in Piccadilly, some friends whom she had not seen for a year, the Miss Climbers, two ladies from Wilmington, Delaware, who had been travelling on the continent and were now preparing to re-embark. Henrietta had had a long interview with them on the Piccadilly pavement, and though the three ladies all talked at once, they had not exhausted their store. It had been agreed, therefore, that Henrietta should come and dine with them in their lodgings in German Street at six o'clock on the morrow, and 
and she now bethought herself of this engagement. She prepared to start for German Street, taking leave first of Ralph Touchett and Isabel, who, seated on garden chairs in another part of the enclosure, were occupied, if the term may be used, with an exchange of amenities less pointed than the practical colloquy of Miss Stackpole and Mr. Bantling. When it had been settled between Isabel and her friend that they should be reunited at some reputable hour at Pratt's Hotel, Ralph remarked that the latter must have a cab. She couldn't walk all the way to German Street. "'I suppose you mean it's improper for me to walk alone?' Henrietta exclaimed. "'Merciful powers! Have I come to this?' "'There's not the slightest need of your walking alone,' Mr. Bantling gaily interposed. "'I should be greatly pleased to go with you.' "'I simply mean that you'd be late for dinner,' Ralph returned. "'Those poor ladies may easily believe that we refuse at the last to spare you.' "'You had better have a handsome, Henrietta,' said Isabel. "'I'll get you a handsome, if you'll trust me,' Mr. Bantling went on. "'We might walk a little till we meet one.' "'I don't see why I shouldn't trust him, do you?' Henrietta inquired of Isabel. "'I don't see what Mr. Bantling could do to you,' Isabel obligingly answered. "'But if you like, we'll walk with you till you find your cab.' "'Never mind, we'll go alone. Come on, Mr. Bantling, and take care you get me a good one.' Mr. Bantling promised to do his best, and the two took their departure, leaving the girl and her cousin together in the square, over which a clear September twilight had now begun to gather. It was perfectly still. The wide quadrangle of dusky houses showed lights in none of the windows, where the shutters and blinds were closed, the pavements were a vacant expanse, and putting aside two small children from a neighbouring slum, who, attracted by symptoms of abnormal animation in the interior, poked their faces between the rusty rails of the enclosure, the most vivid object within sight was the big red pillar-post on the southeast corner. "'Henrietta will ask him to get into the cab and go with her to German Street,' Ralph observed. He always spoke of Miss Stackpole as Henrietta. "'Very possibly,' said his companion. "'Or rather no, she won't,' he went on. "'But Bantling will ask leave to get in.' "'Very likely again. I'm very glad they're such good friends.' She has made a conquest. He thinks her a brilliant woman. It may go far, said Ralph. Isabel was briefly silent. I call Henrietta a very brilliant woman, but I don't think it will go far. They would never really know each other. He has not the least idea what she really is, and she has no just comprehension of Mr. Bantling. There's no more usual basis of union than a mutual misunderstanding— but it ought not to be so difficult to understand Bob Bantling, Ralph added. He is a very simple organism. Yes, but Henrietta's a simpler one still. And pray what am I to do? Isabel asked, looking about her through the fading light, in which the limited landscape gardening of the square took on a large and effective appearance. I don't imagine that you'll propose that you and I, for our amusement, shall drive about London in a hansom. "'There's no reason we shouldn't stay here, if you don't dislike it. "'It's very warm. There will be half an hour yet before dark, "'and if you permit it, I'll light a cigarette.' "'You may do what you please,' said Isabel, "'if you'll amuse me till seven o'clock. "'I propose at that hour to go back and partake of a simple and solitary repast, two poached eggs and a muffin, at Pratt's Hotel.' "'Mayn't I dine with you?' 
Ralph asked. No, you'll dine at your club. They had wandered back to their chairs in the centre of the square again, and Ralph had lighted his cigarette. It would have given him extreme pleasure to be present in person at the modest little feast she had sketched, but in default of this he liked even being forbidden. For the moment, however, he liked immensely being alone with her, in the thickening dusk, in the centre of the multitudinous town. It made her seem to depend upon him, and to be in his power. This power he could exert but vaguely. The best exercise of it was to accept her decision submissively, which indeed there was already an emotion in doing. "'Why won't you let me dine with you?' he demanded after a pause. "'Because I don't care for it.' "'I suppose you're tired of me.' "'I shall be an hour hence. You see, I have the gift of foreknowledge.' "'Oh, I shall be delightful meanwhile,' said Ralph. But he said nothing more, and as she made no rejoinder, they sat some time in a stillness which seemed to contradict his promise of entertainment. It seemed to him she was preoccupied, and he wondered what she was thinking about. There were two or three very possible subjects. At last he spoke again. "'Is your objection to my society this evening caused by your expectation of another visitor?' She turned her head with a glance of her clear, fair eyes. "'Another visitor?' "'What visitor should I have?' He had none to suggest, which made his question seem to himself silly as well as brutal. "'You've a great many friends that I don't know. You've a whole past from which I was perversely excluded. You were reserved for my future. You must remember that my past is over there across the water. There's none of it here in London.' "'Very good, then, since your future is seated beside you.' "'Capital thing to have your future so handy.' And Ralph lighted another cigarette, and reflected that Isabel probably meant she had received news that Mr. Caspar Goodwood had crossed to Paris. After he lighted his cigarette he puffed it a while, and then he resumed. "'I promised just now to be very amusing, but you see I don't come up to the mark, and the fact is there's a good deal of temerity in one's undertaking to amuse a person like you. What do you care for my feeble attempts?' You've grand ideas. You've a high standard in such matters. I ought at least to bring in a band of music or a company of mountebanks. One mountebank's enough, and you do very well. Pray go on, and in another ten minutes I shall begin to laugh. I assure you I'm very serious, said Ralph. You do really ask a great deal. I don't know what you mean. I ask nothing. You accept nothing said Ralph. She coloured, and now suddenly it seemed to her that she guessed his meaning. But why should he speak to her of such things? He hesitated a little, and then he continued. There's something I should like very much to say to you. It's a question I wish to ask. It seems to me I've a right to ask it, because I've a kind of interest in the answer. Ask what you will, Isabel replied gently and I'll try to satisfy you. Well, then, I hope you won't mind my saying that Warburton has told me of something that has passed between you. Isabel suppressed a start. She sat looking at her open fan. Very good. I suppose it was natural he should tell you. I have his leave to let you know he has done so. He has some hope still, said Ralph. 
Still. He had it a few days ago. I don't believe he has any now, said the girl. I'm very sorry for him, then. He's such an honest man. Pray, did he ask you to talk to me? No, not that. But he told me because he couldn't help it. We're old friends, and he was greatly disappointed. He sent me a line asking me to come and see him, and I drove over to Lockley the day before he and his sister lunched with us. He was very heavy-hearted. He had just got a letter from you. Did he show you the letter? asked Isabel with momentary loftiness. By no means. But he told me it was a neat refusal. I was very sorry for him, Ralph repeated. For some moments Isabel said nothing. Then at last, "'Do you know how often he had seen me?' she inquired. Five or six times.' "'That's to your glory.' "'It's not for that I say it.' "'What, then, do you say it for? Not to prove that poor Warburton's state of mind superficial, because I'm pretty sure you don't think that.' Isabel certainly was unable to say she thought it, but presently she said something else. "'If you've not been requested by Lord Warburton to argue with me, then you're doing it disinterestedly, or for the love of argument. I've no wish to argue with you at all. I only wish to leave you alone. I'm simply greatly interested in your own sentiments.' "'I'm greatly obliged to you,' cried Isabel with a slightly nervous laugh. "'Of course you mean that I'm meddling in what doesn't concern me, but why shouldn't I speak to you of this matter without annoying you or embarrassing myself? What's the use of being your cousin if I can't have a few privileges? What's the use of adoring you without hope of a reward if I can't have a few compensations? What's the use of being ill and disabled and restricted to mere spectatorship at the game of life if I really can't see the show when I've paid so much for my ticket? Tell me this. Ralph went on while she listened to him with quickened attention. What had you in mind when you refused Lord Warburton? What had I in mind? What was the logic, the view of your situation, that dictated so remarkable an act? I didn't wish to marry him, if that's logic. No, that's not logic, and I knew that before. It's really nothing, you know. What was it you said to yourself? You certainly said more than that. Isabel reflected a moment, then answered with a question of her own. "'Why do you call it a remarkable act? That's what your mother thinks, too.' "'Warburton's such a thorough good sort. As a man, I consider he has hardly a fault. And then he's what they call here no end of a swell. He has immense possessions, and his wife would be thought a superior being. He unites the intrinsic and the extrinsic advantages.' Isabel watched her cousin, as to see how far he would go. "'I refused him because he was too perfect, then. I'm not perfect myself, and he's too good for me. Besides, his perfection would irritate me.' "'That's ingenious rather than candid,' said Ralph. "'As a fact, you think nothing in the world too perfect for you.' "'Do you think I'm so good?' "'No, but you're exacting all the same, without the excuse of thinking yourself good. Nineteen women out of twenty, however, even of the most exacting sort, would have managed to do with Warburton. Perhaps you don't know how he has been stalked. I don't wish to know. 
"'But it seems to me,' said Isabel, "'that one day when we talked of him you mentioned odd things in him.' Ralph smokingly considered. "'I hope that what I said then had no weight with you, for they were not faults, the things I spoke of. They were simply peculiarities of his position. If I had known he wished to marry you, I'd never have alluded to them. I think I said that as regards that position he was rather a sceptic. It would have been in your power to make him a believer.' I think not. I don't understand the matter, and I'm not conscious of any mission of that sort. You're evidently disappointed, Isabel added, looking at her cousin with rueful gentleness. You'd have liked me to make such a marriage. Not in the least. I'm absolutely without a wish on the subject. I don't pretend to advise you, and I content myself with watching you, with the deepest interest." She gave rather a conscious sigh. "'I wish I could be as interesting to myself as I am to you.' "'There you're not candid again. You're extremely interesting to yourself. Do you know, however,' said Ralph, "'that if you've really given Warburton his final answer, I'm rather glad it has been what it was. I don't mean I'm glad for you, and still less, of course, for him. I'm glad for myself.' "'Are you thinking of proposing to me?' "'By no means. From the point of view I speak of, that would be fatal. I should kill the goose that supplies me with the material of my inimitable omelettes. I use that animal as the symbol of my insane illusions. What I mean is that I shall have the thrill of seeing what a young lady does who won't marry Lord Warburton." "'That's what your mother counts upon, too,' said Isabel. "'Ah, there will be plenty of spectators. We shall hang on the rest of your career. I shall not see all of it. But I shall probably see the most interesting years. Of course, if you were to marry our friend, you'd still have a career, a very decent, in fact a very brilliant one. But relatively speaking, it would be a little prosaic. It would be definitely marked out in advance. It would be wanting in the unexpected. You know I'm extremely fond of the unexpected, and now that you've kept the game in your hands, I depend on your giving us some grand example of it." "'I don't understand you very well,' said Isabel. But I do so well enough to be able to say that if you look for grand examples of anything from me, I shall disappoint you. You'll do so only by disappointing yourself, and that will go hard with you." To this she made no direct reply. There was an amount of truth in it that would bear consideration. At last she said abruptly, "'I don't see what harm there is in my wishing not to tie myself. I don't want to begin life by marrying. There are other things a woman can do. There's nothing she can do so well. But you're, of course, so many-sided. If one's two-sided, it's enough, said Isabel. You're the most charming of polygons, her companion broke out. At a glance from his companion, however, he became grave, and to prove it, went on. You want to see life. You'll be hanged if you don't, as the young men say. I don't think I want to see it as the young men want to see it, but I do want to look about me. You want to drain the cup of experience. No, I don't wish to touch the cup of experience. It's a poisoned drink. I only want to see for myself." "'You want to see, but not to feel,' Ralph remarked. "'I don't think that if one's a sentient being one can make the distinction. I'm a good deal like Henrietta. The other day when I asked her if she wished to marry, she said, "'Not till I've seen Europe.' I too don't wish to marry till I've seen Europe. 
You evidently expect a crowned head will be struck with you. No, that would be worse than marrying Lord Warburton. But it's getting very dark, Isabel continued, and I must go home. She rose from her place, but Ralph only sat still and looked at her. As he remained there she stopped, and they exchanged a gaze that was full on either side, but especially on Ralph's, of utterances too vague for words. "'You've answered my question,' he said at last. "'You've told me what I wanted. I'm greatly obliged to you. It seems to me I've told you very little. You've told me the great thing, that the world interests you, and that you want to throw yourself into it.' Her silvery eyes shone a moment in the dusk. "'I never said that. I think you meant it. Don't repudiate it. It's so fine.' "'I don't know what you're trying to fasten upon me, for I'm not in the least an adventurous spirit. Women are not like men.' Ralph slowly rose from his seat, and they walked together to the gate of the square. "'No,' he said, "'women rarely boast of their courage. Men do so with a certain frequency.' men have it to boast of women have it too you've a great deal enough to go home in a cab to pratt's hotel but not more ralph unlocked the gate and after they had passed out he fastened it we'll find your cab he said and as they turned toward a neighbouring street in which this quest might avail he asked her again if he mightn't see her safely to the inn by no means she answered you're very tired. You must go home and go to bed. The cab was found, and he helped her into it, standing a moment at the door. When people forget I'm a poor creature, I'm often incommoded, he said. But it's worse when they remember it. End of chapter 15《Chapter Sixteen of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. She had had no hidden motive in wishing him not to take her home. It simply struck her that for some days past she had consumed an inordinate quantity of his time, and the independent spirit of the American girl, whom extravagance of aid places in an attitude that she ends by finding affected had made her decide that for these few hours she must suffice to herself. She had, moreover, a great fondness for intervals of solitude, which since her arrival in England had been but meagerly met. It was a luxury she could always command at home, and she had wittingly missed it. That evening, however, an incident occurred, which, had there been a critic to note it, would have taken all colour from the theory that the wish to be by herself had caused her to dispense with her cousin's attendance. Seated toward nine o'clock in the dim illumination of Pratt's hotel, and trying with the aid of two tall candles to lose herself in a volume she had brought from Garden Court, she succeeded only to the extent of reading other words than those printed on the page, words that Ralph had spoken to her that afternoon. Suddenly the well-muffed knuckle of the waiter was applied to the door, which presently gave way to his exhibition, even as a glorious trophy, of the card of a visitor. When this memento had offered to her fixed sight the name of Mr. Caspar Goodwood, 
she let the man stand before her without signifying her wishes. "'Shall I show the gentleman up, ma'am?' he asked, with a slightly encouraging inflection. Isabel hesitated still, and while she hesitated, glanced at the mirror. "'He may come in,' she said at last, and waited for him not so much smoothing her hair as girding her spirit. Caspar Goodwood was accordingly the next moment shaking hands with her, but saying nothing till the servant had left the room. "'Why didn't you answer my letter?' he then asked in a quick, full, slightly peremptory tone, the tone of a man whose questions were habitually pointed and who was capable of much insistence. She answered by a ready question, "'How did you know I was here?' "'Miss Stackpole let me know,' said Caspar Goodwood. "'She told me you would probably be at home alone this evening and would be willing to see me.' "'Where did she see you to tell you that?' "'She didn't see me. She wrote to me.' Isabel was silent. Neither had sat down. They stood there with an air of defiance, or at least of contention. "'Henrietta never told me she was writing to you,' she said at last. "'This is not kind of her.' "'Is it so disagreeable to you to see me?' asked the young man. "'I didn't expect it. I don't like such surprises.' "'But you knew I was in town. It was natural we should meet.' Do you call this meeting? I hoped I shouldn't see you. In so big a place as London it seemed very possible. It was apparently repugnant to you even to write to me, her visitor went on. Isabel made no reply. The sense of Henrietta Stackpole's treachery, as she momentarily qualified it, was strong within her. Henrietta's certainly not a model of all the delicacies, she exclaimed with bitterness. It was a great liberty to take. I suppose I am not a model either, of those virtues or of any others. The fault's mine as much as hers. As Isabel looked at him, it seemed to her that his jaw had never been more square. This might have displeased her, but she took a different turn. No, it's not your fault so much as hers. What you've done was inevitable, I suppose, for you. It was indeed cried Caspar Goodwood with a voluntary laugh. "'And now that I've come, at any rate, mayn't I stay?' "'You may sit down, certainly.' She went back to her chair again, while her visitor took the first place that offered, in the manner of a man accustomed to pay little thought to that sort of furtherance. "'I've been hoping every day for an answer to my letter. You might have written me a few lines.' "'It wasn't the trouble of writing that prevented me.' I could as easily have written you four pages as one. But my silence was an intention, Isabel said. I thought it the best thing. He sat with his eyes fixed on hers while she spoke. Then he lowered them, and attached them to a spot in the carpet, as if he were making a strong effort to say nothing but what he ought. He was a strong man in the wrong and he was acute enough to see that an uncompromising exhibition of his strength would only throw the falsity of his position into relief. Isabel was not incapable of tasting any advantage of position over a person of this quality, and though little desirous to flaunt it in his face, she could enjoy being able to say, "'You know you oughtn't to have written to me yourself,' and to say it with an air of triumph. Caspar Goodwood raised his eyes to her own again. They seemed to shine through the vizard of a helmet. 
he had a strong sense of justice, and was ready any day in the year, over and above this, to argue the question of his rights. "'You said you hoped never to hear from me again. I know that. But I never accepted any such rule as my own. I warned you that you should hear very soon.' "'I didn't say I hoped never to hear from you,' said Isabel. "'Not for five years, then. For ten years, twenty years. It's the same thing.' "'Do you find it so? It seems to me there's a great difference. I can imagine that at the end of ten years we might have a very pleasant correspondence. I shall have matured my epistolary style.' She looked away while she spoke these words, knowing them of so much less earnest a cast than the countenance of her listener. Her eyes, however, at last came back to him, just as he said, very irrelevantly, "'Are you enjoying your visit to your uncle?' "'Very much indeed.' She dropped, but then she broke out. "'What good do you expect to get by insisting?' "'The good of not losing you.' "'You've no right to talk of losing what's not yours. And even from your own point of view,' Isabel added, "'you ought to know when to let one alone.' "'I disgust you very much,' said Caspar Goodwood gloomily, not as if to provoke her to compassion for a man conscious of this blighting fact, but as if to set it well before himself, so that he might endeavour to act with his eyes on it. "'Yes, you don't at all delight me. You don't fit in, not in any way just now, and the worst is that your putting it to the proof in this manner is quite unnecessary.' It wasn't certainly as if his nature had been soft, so that pinpricks would draw blood from it, and from the first of her acquaintance with him, and of her having to defend herself against a certain air that he had of knowing better what was good for her than she knew herself, she had recognized the fact that perfect frankness was her best weapon. To attempt to spare his sensibility or to escape from him edgewise, as one might do from a man who had barred the way less sturdily, this, in dealing with Caspar Goodwood, who would grasp at everything of every sort that one might give him, was wasted agility. It was not that he had not susceptibilities, but his passive surface, as well as his active, was large and hard, and he might always be trusted to dress his wounds, so far as they required it, himself. She came back, even for her measure of possible pangs and aches in him, to her old sense that he was naturally plated and steeled, armed essentially for aggression. "'I can't reconcile myself to that,' he simply said. There was a dangerous liberality about it, for she felt how open it was to him to make the point that he had not always disgusted her. "'I can't reconcile myself to it either, and it's not the state of things that ought to exist between us. If you'd only try to banish me from your mind for a few months, we should be on good terms again.' "'I see. If I should cease to think of you at all for a prescribed time, I should find I could keep it up indefinitely.' indefinitely is more than i ask it's more even than i should like you know what you ask is impossible said the young man taking his adjective for granted in a manner she found irritating aren't you capable of making a calculated effort she demanded you're strong for everything else why shouldn't you be strong for that an effort calculated for what and then as she hung fire I'm capable of nothing with regard to you, he went on, but just of being infernally in love with you. 
If one's strong, one loves only the more strongly. There's a good deal in that. And indeed our young lady felt the force of it, felt it thrown off into the vast of truth and poetry, as practically a bait to her imagination. But she promptly came round. Think of me or not, as you find most possible. Only leave me alone. Until when? Well, for a year or two. Which do you mean? Between one year and two there's all the difference in the world. Call it two, then, said Isabel, with a studied effect of eagerness. And what shall I gain by that? her friend asked with no sign of wincing. You'll have obliged me greatly. And what will be my reward? Do you need a reward for an act of generosity? Yes, when it involves a great sacrifice. There's no generosity without some sacrifice. Men don't understand such things. If you make the sacrifice, you'll have all my admiration. I don't care a cent for your admiration, not one straw, with nothing to show for it. When will you marry me? That's the only question. Never, if you go on making me feel only as I feel at present. What do I gain, then, by not trying to make you feel otherwise? You'll gain quite as much as by worrying me to death. Caspar Goodwood bent his eyes again, and gazed a while into the crown of his hat. A deep flush overspread his face. She could see her sharpness had at last penetrated. This immediately had a value. Classic, romantic, redeeming. What did she know, for her? The strong man in pain was one of the categories of the human appeal, little charm as he might exert in the given case. "'Why do you make me say such things to you?' she cried in a trembling voice. I only want to be gentle, to be thoroughly kind. It's not delightful to me to feel people care for me and yet to have to try and reason them out of it. I think others also ought to be considerate. We have each to judge for ourselves. I know you're considerate as much as you can be. You've good reasons for what you do. But I really don't want to marry, or to talk about it at all now. I shall probably never do it, no, never. I've a perfect right to feel that way, and it's no kindness to a woman to press her so hard, to urge her against her will. If I give you pain, I can only say I'm very sorry. It's not my fault. I can't marry you simply to please you. I won't say that I shall always remain your friend, because when women say that in these situations, it passes, I believe, for a sort of mockery. But... Try me some day. Caspar Goodwood, during this speech, had kept his eyes fixed upon the name of his hatter, and it was not until some time after she had ceased speaking that he raised them. When he did so, the sight of a rosy, lovely eagerness in Isabel's face threw some confusion into his attempt to analyse her words. I'll go home. I'll go tomorrow. I'll leave you alone, he brought out at last. Only, he heavily said, I hate to lose sight of you. Never fear, I shall do no harm. You'll marry someone else, as sure as I sit here, Caspar Goodwood declared. Do you think that a generous charge? Why not? Plenty of men will try to make you. 
i told you just now that i don't wish to marry and that i almost certainly never shall i know you did and i like your almost certainly i put no faith in what you say thank you very much do you accuse me of lying to shake you off you say very delicate things why should i not say that you've given me no pledge of anything at all no that's all that would be wanting you may perhaps even believe you're safe from wishing to be but you're not the young man went on as if preparing himself for the worst very well then we'll put it that i'm not safe have it as you please i don't know however said caspar goodwood that my keeping you in sight would prevent it don't you indeed i'm after all very much afraid of you do you think i'm so very easily pleased she asked suddenly changing her tone no i don't i shall try to console myself with that but there are a certain number of very dazzling men in the world no doubt and if there were only one it would be enough the most dazzling of all will make straight for you you'll be sure to take no one who isn't dazzling if you mean by dazzling brilliantly clever isabel said and i can't imagine what else you mean i don't need the aid of a clever man to teach me how to live i can find it out for myself find out how to live alone i wish that when you have you'd teach me she looked at him a moment then with a quick smile oh you ought to marry she said he might be pardoned if for an instant this exclamation seemed to him to sound the infernal note and it is not on record that her motive for discharging such a shaft had been of the clearest he oughtn't to stride about lean and hungry however she certainly felt that for him god forgive you he murmured between his teeth as he turned away her accent had put her slightly in the wrong and after a moment she felt the need to right herself the easiest way to do it was to place him where she had been you do me great injustice you say what you don't know she broke out i shouldn't be an easy victim i've proved it oh to me perfectly i've proved it to others as well and she paused a moment i refused a proposal of marriage last week what they call no doubt a dazzling one i'm very glad to hear it said the young man gravely it was a proposal many girls would have accepted it had everything to recommend it isabel had not proposed to herself to tell this story but now she had begun the satisfaction of speaking it out and doing herself justice took possession of her i was offered a great position and a great fortune by a person whom i like extremely caspar watched her with intense interest is he an englishman he's an english nobleman said isabel her visitor received this announcement at first in silence but at last said i'm glad he's disappointed well then as you have companions in misfortune make the best of it i don't call him a companion said caspar grimly why not since i declined his offer absolutely that doesn't make him my companion besides he's an englishman and pray isn't an englishman a human being isabel asked oh those people they're not of my humanity and i don't care what becomes of them you're very angry said the girl we've discussed this matter quite enough 
Oh, yes, I'm very angry. I plead guilty to that. She turned away from him, walked to the open window, and stood a moment looking into the dusky void of the street, where a turbid gaslight alone represented social animation. For some time neither of these young persons spoke. Caspar lingered near the chimney-piece with eyes gloomily attached. She had virtually requested him to go, he knew that, but at the risk of making himself odious he kept his ground. She was far too dear to him to be easily renounced, and he had crossed the sea all to wring from her some scrap of a vow. Presently she left the window and stood again before him. "'You do me very little justice, after my telling you what I told you just now. I'm sorry I told you, since it matters so little to you.' "'Ah!' cried the young man. "'If you were thinking of me when you did it.' And then he paused with the fear that she might contradict so happy a thought. "'I was thinking of you. A little?' said Isabel. A little? I don't understand. If the knowledge of what I feel for you had any weight with you at all, calling it a little is a poor account of it. Isabel shook her head as if to carry off a blunder. I've refused a most kind, noble gentleman. Make the most of that. I thank you, then, said Caspar Goodwood gravely. I thank you immensely. And now you had better go home. "'May I not see you again?' he asked. "'I think it's better not. "'You'll be sure to talk of this, and you see it leads to nothing. "'I promise you not to say a word that will annoy you.' "'Isabel reflected and then answered, "'I return in a day or two to my uncle's, "'and I can't propose to you to come there. "'It would be too inconsistent.' "'Casper Goodwood, on his side, considered.' You must do me justice, too. I received an invitation to your uncle's more than a week ago, and I declined it. She betrayed surprise. From whom was your invitation? From Mr. Ralph Touchett, whom I suppose to be your cousin. I declined it because I had not your authorization to accept it. The suggestion that Mr. Touchett should invite me appeared to have come from Miss Stackpole. It certainly never did from me. "'Henrietta really goes very far,' Isabel added. "'Don't be too hard on her. That touches me.' "'No. If you declined, you did quite right. And I thank you for it.' And she gave a little shudder of dismay at the thought that Lord Warburton and Mr. Goodwood might have met at Garden Court. It would have been so awkward for Lord Warburton. "'When you leave your uncle, where do you go?' her companion asked. I go abroad with my aunt, to Florence and other places. The serenity of this announcement struck a chill to the young man's heart. He seemed to see her whirled away into circles from which he was inexorably excluded. Nevertheless, he went on quickly with his questions. And when shall you come back to America? Perhaps not for a long time. I'm very happy here. Do you mean to give up your country? Don't be an infant! "'Well, you'll be out of my sight indeed,' said Caspar Goodwood. "'I don't know,' she answered rather grandly. "'The world, with all these places so arranged and so touching each other, "'comes to strike one as rather small. "'It's a sight too big for me. 
Casper exclaimed, with a simplicity our young lady might have found touching, if her face had not been set against concessions. This attitude was part of a system, a theory that she had lately embraced, and to be thorough she said after a moment, "'Don't think me unkind if I say it's just that, being out of your sight, that I like. If you were in the same place I should feel you were watching me, and I don't like that. I like my liberty too much. If there's a thing in the world I'm fond of,' she went on with a slight recurrence of grandeur, it's my personal independence. But whatever there might be of the two superior in this speech moved Caspar Goodwood's admiration. There was nothing he winced at in the large air of it. He had never supposed she hadn't wings and the need of beautiful free movements. He wasn't, with his own long arms and strides, afraid of any force in her. Isabel's words, if they had been meant to shock him, failed of the mark, and only made him smile with the sense that here was common ground. "'Who would wish less to curtail your liberty than I? What can give me greater pleasure than to see you perfectly independent, doing whatever you like? It's to make you independent that I want to marry you.' "'That's a beautiful sophism,' said the girl with a smile more beautiful still. "'An unmarried woman, a girl of your age, isn't independent. There are all sorts of things she can't do. She's hampered at every step. That's as she looks at the question, Isabel answered with much spirit. I'm not in my first youth. I can do what I choose. I belong quite to the independent class. I've neither father nor mother. I'm poor and of a serious disposition. I'm not pretty. I therefore am not bound to be timid and conventional. Indeed, I can't afford such luxuries. Besides, I try to judge things for myself. To judge wrong, I think, is more honourable than not to judge at all. I don't wish to be a mere sheep in the flock. I wish to choose my fate, and know something of human affairs beyond what other people think it compatible with propriety to tell me. She paused a moment, but not long enough for her companion to reply. He was apparently on the point of doing so when she went on. Let me say this to you, Mr. Goodwood. You're so kind as to speak of being afraid of my marrying. If you should hear a rumour that I'm on the point of doing so, girls are liable to have such things said about them, remember what I have told you about my love of liberty, and venture to doubt it. There was something passionately positive in the tone in which she gave him this advice, and he saw a shining candour in her eyes that helped him to believe her. On the whole he felt reassured, and you might have perceived it by the manner in which he said, quite eagerly, "'You want simply to travel for two years. I'm quite willing to wait two years, and you may do what you like in the interval. If that's all you want, pray say so. I don't want you to be conventional. Do I strike you as conventional myself? Do you want to improve your mind? Your mind's quite good enough for me, but if it interests you to wander about a while and see different countries, I shall be delighted to help you in any way in my power. You're very generous. That's nothing new to me. The best way to help me will be to put as many hundred miles of sea between us as possible. One would think you were going to commit some atrocity, said Caspar Goodwood. Perhaps I am. I wish to be free even to do that if the fancy takes me. Well, then, he said slowly, 
I'll go home. And he put out his hand, trying to look contented and confident. Isabel's confidence in him, however, was greater than any he could feel in her. Not that he thought her capable of committing an atrocity, but turn it over as he would, there was something ominous in the way she reserved her option. As she took his hand, she felt a great respect for him. She knew how much he cared for her, and she thought him magnanimous. They stood so for a moment, looking at each other, united by a hand-clasp which was not merely passive on her side. "'That's right.' she said very kindly, almost tenderly. "'You'll lose nothing by being a reasonable man.' "'But I'll come back, wherever you are, two years hence,' he returned with characteristic grimness. We have seen that our young lady was inconsequent, and at this she suddenly changed her tone. "'Ah, remember, I promise nothing, absolutely nothing!' Then, more softly, as if to help him leave her. And remember, too, that I shall not be an easy victim. You'll get very sick of your independence. Perhaps I shall. It's even very probable. When that day comes, I shall be very glad to see you. She had laid her hand on the knob of the door that led into her room, and she waited a moment to see whether her visitor would not take his departure. But he appeared unable to move, there was still an immense unwillingness in his attitude and a sore remonstrance in his eyes i must leave you now said isabel and she opened the door and passed into the other room the apartment was dark but the darkness was tempered by a vague radiance sent up through the window from the court of the hotel and isabel could make out the masses of furniture the dim shining of the mirror and the looming of the big four-posted bed she stood still a moment, listening, and at last she heard Caspar Goodwood walk out of the sitting-room and close the door behind him. She stood still a little longer, and then, by an irresistible impulse, dropped on her knees before her bed and hid her face in her arms. End of chapter 16Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. 
and MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 